This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. So good to be with you. Happy Wednesday. Mm. Thank you. Did you have to think about that? I did. Okay. Happy Wednesday, uh, not Tuesday. Tomorrow's Thursday, then Friday, then the weekend again. Apparently, the day of the election is moved. Uh, oh, really? It was on the November 8th. Uh-huh. Now, apparently, it's on the 28th. Did Florida have anything to do with that? No, but Trump was in Florida when he said that. Oh, so he made a mistake. I don't know. Yeah. Is it a mistake, or did they change something? Because, no. I mean, they've been moving, like, the... Uh, the 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 what the um the dates for sign yeah, for yeah. registering registration the vote. pre yeah the vote yeah they've been moving those but not the election no, date no it okay. can't happen you know why because the Clintons can't afford to have that many more WikiLeak releases right you know they got to get this thing wrapped up as soon as they can because yeah. <laughs> more and more stuff keeps dripping out about uh, in poor it's it's Podesta heard. Like what is he the the head of her? He's the chairman. Campaign. He's yeah. the chairman of the campaign, which sounds like a title, yeah, in itself. But he may have a chair. They somewhere. keep leaking, just you know, concern after concern after concern. All the information, all the behind the scenes. So no, it can't happen. They've got to get this election done so they can move in. Okay, so the twenty eighth date is the. Yeah, it's still probably it's the not 8th. the twenty eighth, November eighth, because that would that would be like Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, boy. Do you want to vote Thanksgiving weekend? Don't ruin Thanksgiving. Be like Black Friday and you have to also go vote? Some things, I mean, sure, the vote is sacred and all, but so is Thanksgiving. Which is more sacred? Thanksgiving. Do you think think the Clintons already have everything boxed up, ready to go? Yeah. I don't think they unpacked their other boxes from when they left the White House. That's true. Well, they said they left the White House with nothing. Well, except they actually took a lot of stuff. Do you remember they had to Well, they, they took like the, the W keys on, off all the yeah. keyboards. Well, they left it all there. We'll, we'll be right back in about eight years or it's, I guess 16 years. It's in storage. It's, um, it's out of control. Donald Trump now is totally against the GOP. Well, the shackles are off, he says. The shackles so, are off. As I read this morning, a quarter of leadership is against Trump. So it's mutual. Yeah. yeah. He's no longer burdened by having to bring along the leadership of the GOP. So <laughs> that's good news, so I guess. So listen to this. USA Today found that a full 26% of top elected Republican officials won't endorse Trump in his bid. According to the news outlet, 87 officials have said they refused to back him for, back him for elected office. Out of 31 Republican governors, 54 Republican senators, 246 members of the House, that's about a quarter of all top GOP elected officials. We got a bunch of real dummies, I tell you. <laughs> Unbelievable. And no past, uh, no candidate that's run for president. So Romney won't, McCain won't, the Bushes won't. Well, one of the Bushes, I think. Well, no, they're, they're voting, voting for Clinton as well. Um, anyway, what do you know? What do you know? It's crazy town. Crazy town. <sighs> Love it. God See bless this, America. This is the chaos that makes it interesting. If it oh, was yeah. just... If they're just fighting over, you know, remember, remember, uh, Romney had his binders full of women. Oh yeah, yeah. That comment caused a hysteria. Yeah, that was just so outrageous. That's so pedestrian. Now. So yeah, totally. that's nothing. <laughs> but it's totally. okay to say um, 
What was a basket of deplorables? Mm-hmm. You can totally say that now. You can also pretty much say anything apparently about the opposite sex, and it's fine. It's good. I saw a room full of of women still voting for Trump, and they said that that's just locker room talk. They were their dads and brothers. Say my all dad that. used to say stuff like that all like, the time. Really? He's a great guy. I have never heard. No. I like I told, said yesterday. I heard fourteen year olds trying to act like men mm-hmm. saying things. Yeah, but even that, I mean, this is, that's just crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Not 59-year-old men in a bus. No. With a camera and microphones. Billy Bush. Talking to a TV reporter. No, none of that. Uh, WikiLeaks apparently is dropping another 1,200. Oh, great. Uh, they should just really slow down. They could cut, they could cut that up and do it daily. <laughs> they, I think they are. Kind of a slow drip. It's a slow, yeah, it's a slow drip. That's good. Um, it's also, by the way, bring your, te- your teddy bear to work day. Mm. If you have a teddy bear, today's the day you, you bring it to work. It's kind of like bring your kids to work day. But it's a teddy bear. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like that, but not. It's also Old Farmer's Day. Not Young Farmer's Day. Mm. Just Old Farmer's Day. I don't understand. Why? Yeah. The, even the explanation I found for it really doesn't answer the I think, I think it's because of Old McDonald. Is that what it is? Yeah. This is true. Oh. This is the teddy bear song. Teddy bears. Matt, I see that you brought your teddy bear to work yeah. today. Yeah, that's Terry. What? Terry's my teddy bear. Wow. So cute. Um, Old Farmer's Day and Teddy Bear Day. Hmm. Bring them to work. Tons bring, of fun. Bring your farmers to work? Yeah. Why don't they ever have a bring your old farmer to work day? <laughs> you just see people dragging everyone in by their coveralls. Lots of tractors in the parking lot. <laughs> Those are the days. Those were the days. So we will get to all of that fun, um, plus update you on the chaos known as the political world and uh, all things political. Plus, interesting topic um, coming up. We will be talking with a professor that's uh, discussing how a lot of people don't believe in, you know, in the in the great institutions of academics anymore. We don't we don't believe them. We don't listen to them. Right. They're they're losing their power, and uh, he's going to present. You know, maybe that's scary because you know, and and academia needs to pick up their game. Mm-hmm. They used to laugh at, you know, if you want to go be on television to talk about your your research, you're kind of betraying the academic world because true academics aren't on TV. No, you they, simply publish, you toss it out there, that. no one reads it, but you feel good about it. And now they're actually losing relevancy. They're, I mean, they're not. They're not important. So we'll get to that. Crazy statistics and numbers. Listen to this. 87% of scientists accept that natural selection plays a role in evolution, but only 32% of the public agree. Mm-hmm. 88% of scientists think that genetically modified foods are safe, but only 37% of the public agree. Says who? <laughs> Says who? So we'll get to all that fun. But first... We must get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? During an interview on the O'Reilly Factor, Donald Trump escalated his fight with Speaker of the House Paul Ryan saying, I don't want his support. I don't care about his support. On Tuesday, Trump signaled he would be happy to wage his war against Ryan and Senator John McCain, who withdrew his endorsement. I wouldn't be in a foxhole with a lot of these people, Trump said, especially Ryan. 
Donald Trump tweeted on Tuesday that he now feels free to speak his mind. It is so nice that the shackles have been taken off of me and I can now fight for America the way I want to. Several Republicans have removed their endorsement of the candidate following the release of leaked audio from 2005 showing the GOP nominee bragging about groping women. Trump's tweet is an ominous sign of his aim to somehow become even more controversial. In a series of angry tweets, Trump called his party disloyal and said those Republican lawmakers abandoning his campaign efforts are far more difficult than crooked Hillary. He called House Speaker Paul Ryan weak and ineffective for stating that he will no longer defend the nominee. At a town hall in Iowa on Tuesday, Mike Pence broke once again with his running mate Donald Trump. That's because when a voter told the Indiana governor and Republican vice presidential nominee that she was worried about this, quote, voter fraud, that she was also worried, uh, also ready for a revolution if Hillary Clinton should win the White House, Pence discouraged her rhetoric. But his running mate, at least on Tuesday, wasn't having it. Don't say that, he told the woman, before encouraging her to get involved in election processes at state level if she's truly worried about voting security. And finally... Yes, a Domino's pizza in mm. England has begun testing delivery by drone canoe. <laughs> what? To homes along a local river. Oh, oh boy. Domino's Pizza Loose shared a photo of Domino's employee paddling along the River Loose while making a delivery. The canoes will deliver pizzas along the River Loose in Maidstone with pizza boxes that are equipped with special inflation devices to keep the food safe and dry. We're really wow. going somewhere with this. Yeah. We are really going somewhere with this. They're only delivering to Ron Swanson is the only one ordering by canoe. Yeah. Most likely. That's awesome. Yes. Unbelievable. In case we tip over, the pizza's safe. (laughs) You guys, the pizza's totally safe. So they put an inflatable cover over it. Special inflation devices. It's a pizza cozy. Yes. And it keeps it warm and dry. And dry. So, you know, you just never know if someone doesn't know how to, you know, paddle a canoe and they actually tip it over. At least you know your pizza will be safe. Mm. And dry. See, Domino's is innovating pizza. Yeah. They have a, a special car in some big markets where it has See, a, kind of an oven in the yeah. back to keep it warm. Domino's, they're they're on the cutting edge. Europe, canoes. Mm. Can't with, they just work on the pizza that they've already that they're already selling? No, oh, yeah. absolutely Instead of not. Putting no. the money elsewhere? No, if, no. You, if you put oh. the money elsewhere, then no one notices the pizza. A lot of people say oh, the okay. pizza's the problem, but whatever. <laughs> Papa John says that. That's right. That's for sure. Holy cow. Thank you, Sadie. Interesting uh, news. Um, Trump is struggling now. Now the polls are coming out showing that in many states he's he's taking a hit because of all of the uh, videos, the videos. Well, the video, the video and maybe other videos to be released. But um, apparently now Trump has basically fallen into a tie in Utah with Hillary Clinton. Now, Utah, one of the reddest states on the face of the earth. Yeah, pretty much. Now, but your your entire life, my entire life. I don't think a Democrat has ever been mentioned when it comes to no. president. Now we've had a Democratic governor here. Yes, but as but, far as the presidential election, I, I think is I heard the last time was I can't. Yeah. I was it FDR. No. I can't yeah, it was remember. a long time ago. Yeah. But Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are now even with Evan McMullen, who is a, a Utahn. Yeah, um, he's up to twenty two percent of the vote. And Gary Johnson has 14% of the vote. Despite his lack of geographic knowledge. <laughs> Doesn't and, remember Kim Jong. leaders yeah. of countries. Yeah. So, um, so now that makes it so it's only got six electoral votes, I believe, Utah does. But it's, it's pretty minimal. But if Trump has to divert his attention to save a state that he should 
you know, clean up on without a problem. Yeah, he should. That causes issues for the rest of the campaign. That should be focusing on, say, Ohio and Florida and Pennsylvania. Should be a no-brainer. Right. He's also uh, there's now Donald Trump is taking on uh, Paul Ryan. He's mad about Paul Ryan. He thinks the the party should be helping him more, but he says whatever. The shackles are off now. I can say whatever I want to say. He was on the O'Reilly Factor. That's where the uh, the the Donald yes these quotes came from. And Bill O'Reilly asked him, "What are you talking about with the shackles? You're you're the most outspoken person in politics. Where you know what happened? Where, where are the shackles gone?" Jason, all right, all right. But what shackles? What well, shackles did you, you have on? So, I Paul, mean, uh, the shackles are some of the establishment people that are weak and ineffective people within the Republican Party, senators and others. Uh, and Paul Ryan led to a certain extent by so Paul they, Ryan. They were holding uh, being you back. Nasty to the nominee. They were holding uh, you not back. Not a question of holding back. No, but they're not giving support. They don't give the kind of support. You know, we got more votes, more than 14 million votes, more than anybody in the history of the Republican primaries bill, and they don't give the support that we really need. I mean, how do you support a guy that said what he said on that bus? Like, oh, yeah, I, you know. Well, there's, do do? there's a, a Senator Sessions from Alabama yesterday said, uh, or the other, well, he said it after Trump, he watched the video. He goes, is that even assault? I don't even, whatever he's talking about, I don't even know if that's assault. <laughs> you know? It's a, uh, yeah. So he's taking some flack for that. But yeah, it's interesting. He calls them, the shackles are off. He can now do what? And he's talking about, I, I wasn't getting support. Yeah. So that was pulling it's me over. down. It's over. So now, is he just going to go you scorch can't, earth? You can't, you, again, like we said, you cannot mention the fat lady singing because Donald will turn it into a major offense. But it's over. It's over. It's I, over. I've heard multiple times now. So I, I watch uh, every night. I watch like the CBS Evening News, NBC, ABC, just to see what the the stories are. And they each of them have mentioned at one point or another that. No candidate has been this far behind, this mm. late in the contest, and won. It's too too yeah. hard a hill to climb to get back ahead of your opponent. And it seems like, um, really, even if, if something crazy came out about Hillary Clinton, it's not going to alter her vote. The people There's a certain percentage that love Hillary no yeah. matter what, and a certain percentage that tolerate Hillary. There's a certain percentage that love Donald no matter what, and a certain percentage that tolerate Donald... It's that remaining swing vote, and I don't think I don't think he's going to get it. Especially now that the gloves are off, he's going to start. He's going to continue to just create chaos. Oh. I'm going to beat her so easily. I haven't even started on her yet. Um, and then there's some question on if anything will actually have effect as people are already voting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, right. you get a certain percentage of people who are going to vote and probably check out. And uh, then there's the old revolution coming. One of the voters at a Pence rally said, um, you know, I'm out of here because uh, we're going to we're going to start a revolution. And Mike Pence shot that down. And one of the biggest things I can tell you that a lot of us are scared of is this voter fraud. Our lives depend on this election. If Hillary Clinton gets in, I myself, I'm ready for a revolution because we can't have her in. Yeah, you don't, don't say But that. I'm just saying it. There's a revolution coming on November the 8th, I promise you. The best antidote to that is to be involved in the election process. There, if, if you are concerned about voter integrity and you haven't signed up to be a poll watcher, to volunteer at a polling place, to be a part of the integrity of that process, then you need to do it. 
Mm. So he tried to defuse things. but yeah, uh, no, the, we don't need a revolution. But notice there's already now, oh, there's voter fraud because if Donald doesn't win, there's well, obviously he's, fraud. He's talking about it. Right. He's talking about, well, if I lose, it's because of these reasons. And Well, really, if he loses, it's because Donna Brazil had the town hall questions. Well, that's what one of the WikiLeaks said, right? Yeah, so apparently Donna <laughs> – Donna Brazil, who is the DNC acting acting chair, after the other apparently one was had the questions from the town hall uh, debate that we just had. No, this was back in the primaries. Oh, it was a primary debate. Yeah, Did, but um, it was a question to Hillary Clinton about uh, the death penalty. So they they were able to prepare for yeah, that prepare question. Her and... Now there's some question is that that's an actual story because. Like uh, it's it involves CNN and then a network called TV One, mm. and I Fox News was talking about it, and they really doubt it because the network isn't going to uh, to ruin what well, they're trying to do with the, with and the, you the heard, debate. So. You also heard that uh, many believe that Donald's trying to um, kind of go. He's going nuclear, but he's going to pollute the pool to so keep Hillary discourage voters, voters. Yeah. That nobody goes out and votes, and then Hillary's in trouble. Which I, it, that actually makes sense because that seems to be his strategy. Right? Yeah. It seems to have the pool seems to have gotten really murky. Murky. Hmm. Murky pool. Oh, isn't it great? It's just, I mean, honestly, if you if you like politics, this is this is a crazy election. If you like a democracy. And a healthy America? Mm, hang on to your hat. We will take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about academics. And, uh, you know, are, the, are the, the scholars of America losing their power? And does that matter? Interesting discussion. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Principal Ed Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off has instilled in many of us a deep dislike for anyone in academia. Regardless of our disdain, should we continue to write off academics today? Is academia still relevant in our society today? Um, According to uh, some writings by our next guest, uh, an interesting statistic came up. 87% of scientists think that climate change is mostly due to human activity, and yet only 50% of the public agree. And he gave over and over many, many examples of where, you know, the academics are saying one thing, but the public are all saying another thing. So there's a divide. There's a divide going on power and influence of academics. It's dropping. And here to speak with us today is uh, Dr. Andy J. Hoffman, a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan. And he, he wrote a wonderful article in theconversation.com. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, thank you again so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. This, um, in fact, how we found you... I think is uh, is a very important method that might be one of the solutions of of your argument here. We and I I see it personally on this radio show because I being on a campus I hear a lot of the great academic research being done, but I also see that a lot of the academics aren't very good at getting their messages out. Um, what is going on? Why is there such a divide in people following, trusting, believing in the academics? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. 
Um, the one that I wanted to focus on in this particular article was the extent to which academics don't see it as their job hmm. to get their information out. Uh, all our rewards point us towards publishing in the top academic journals. Uh, but let's face it, the average public and certainly politicians don't read those journals. So, so true. the information's brought to the public and to the political process, uh, it will not have an impact. Well, and um, I've, I, I, when I got my doctorate, um, the idea of worrying more, because my idea was we need to get these messages out. And I had a strong background in communications, in journalism, in broadcasting. I'm like, why aren't academics doing it? And it's exactly what you said. There is a belief in a way that it's kind of beneath them. Their job is mm-hmm. to stir the conversation within within the academia, within that world instead of outside of the world. Sure. I mean, we can look at both the formal and the informal rewards. And in the formal rewards, um, we do promotion and tenure process. We do annual reviews, and it really focuses on the level of research in the academic journals and citation counts. And the informal rewards also matter. Uh, It's referred to by many as the Carl Sagan effect. That Mm. um, Carl Sagan was mocked by many scientists as being a popularizer and a hack, and it was actually denied admission to the National Academies. And that bias still exists. There are people within the academy that will look at those who bring information to the general general public as 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 a hack and a popularizer, and therefore not as serious a scientist. Mm. And why on earth couldn't it be both? That's a great question, and, and one I'm, I'm, uh, I and many others are starting to ask, and I think there are a number of real threats at the door that are compelling the question. Um, certainly, social media is changing what we do. We can't ignore that. So you write your paper for the academic journals, but someone else produces something using less than rigorous methods and produces it and puts it on social media. They win, we lose. Um, there is growing antagonism towards the academy because they don't understand what we do. We can see that most visibly in state legislatures, for example, in mm. Wisconsin and North Carolina, cutting funding. And I also, it's very interesting, social media is changing how people think about science and the access to it and their own perceptions of their own authority. Um, Jenny McCarthy has been able to get women or parents not to vaccinate their children for fear of autism, even though medical science says that connection is right there. And she boasts that she went to the University of Google. And I've talked to many medical doctors who say it's starting to get really frustrating because they have they bring their medical experience to bear. They come up with a recommendation and then the, 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 the patient will actually say, well, I saw an ad on TV. And so I want to go this other way. Oh. And, and it's just it's it's really an alarming situation, especially when you add on top of that that you know surveys show that that many, if not most Americans do not understand science or the scientific process, yet you ask them if they feel they have a solid understanding of climate change or <laughs> GMOs, and they say they do. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because you know we watch Rachel Ray. Um, so it's I guess there's a this there is such a change in the world. Um, and maybe the pop culture and the pop media and regular kind of forms of media are able to get into the heads and the hearts of the people. Is it – I mean, I, I, so that creates the divide. Is it academics and and is it the academy's job to worry about its own marketing? Or is it – or is just the purity of, of the, the, the uh, scientific methodology all that they should worry about? Well, I think that's the question to answer is, is the role of the university and society shifting? 
um, has it already shifted and perhaps drifted too far away from empirical relevance, and does it have to pivot back? And that would be my position. And I think it's a, a worthy debate to be had, because in, in truth, the conversation of the role of science in the academy, and particularly government funding of science, has been around since World War II. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, uh, my feeling, and that of many, is that we've swung too far, and our work is focused on a small number of our academic peers with very little interest or regard in bringing it to the general public. Now, I also want to say that I, I don't think every academic needs to do this. I don't think every academic right. should do it. But we should broaden the portfolio of what it means to be a professor so that some who are more in the upstream end of doing very, very basic research, you stay there, you do your thing, but others who want to drift more towards the directions of making scientific information and making it accessible to the public and making it of value to the um, the general public, that's what it's all about. And if I may, I'd like to read to you something from the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. The Mayo Clinic did something very interesting just recently. They announced that they are going to use um, social media in their promotion and tenure process. Oh, wow. And that's a very interesting development. And that's what I was trying to do in this article as well, is just say, if you look closely, there are some changes. This conversation has been engaged, and that encourages me. But the, the closing of their argument, and I'm quoting from the Mayo Clinic, it says, the moral and societal duty of an academic healthcare provider, and you could insert in there just a health, academic, is to advance science, improve the care of his or her patients, and share knowledge. A very important part of this role requires physicians to participate in public debate, responsibly influence opinion, and help our patients navigate the complexities of healthcare. As clinician educators, our job is not to create knowledge obscura, trapped in ivory towers, and only accessible to the enlightened. The knowledge we create and manage needs to impact our communities. And mm. I think that, that is a really important point. Jane Lubchenco, a former head of NOAA, a professor at Oregon State, has been pushing the idea of science as social contract. We have an obligation to society, given our position, mm. to bring that information to the public. That is great. That's a wonderful um, citation. It's, I, I guess that gets to the point that to be a good academic, to be a good researcher doesn't mean you're always a great communicator, but it's not like a department couldn't also bring on an academic that's a great communicator. Right. And, and about the portfolio of yeah, faculty, not just each faculty. Exactly. Member. That's. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you really do. You want you want the top researchers researching, but somebody mm-hmm. needs to be communicating their message. Is it more? Could you have a support team? Could you could you create more of a support team around every department that is more responsible for the communication? Sure. Some universities are hiring science communicators. So you write a paper and they'll help write a press release hmm. or get it out there. And then also the medium that you found me through. It's called The Conversation. Right. And there are others. The Monkey Cage is another one. And these are domains where academics can write essays about their work and bypass the mainstream press. And interestingly, some of the mainstream press, it's free access. You can repost them anywhere. And some mainstream news sources are going to the conversation and using those for news stories. I've had a couple of posts show up in U.S. Newsroom Report or Time mm-hmm. Magazine and so forth. And so that, that the, the whole domain of information in this country is shifting. Academia is caught up in it. It also has implications for the role of the journalist. Yes. I, and we see it on – I mean we're at BYU campus. Um, 
well, we have you know a national show on a on a large platform, and yet sometimes drawing an academic like a professor into the show, it's easier to get sometimes people off of the conversation to come talk about their stuff because they're already into communicating it than it is to get somebody out of a department at BYU to come over and talk about it. Yeah, because I think it, it requires first um, an, an interest in doing it. And right. Many don't. Um, if you do read the comments that follow that article, some are quite interesting. And some of them are from people who say, you know, I don't trust scientists. I don't want to hear from scientists. And that, huh. that sentiment is out there. Yeah, oh, for sure. But then there's also some from scientists who say, I don't want to do this, and, and in, a, in a not terribly nice way. And I'll read you one comment. Yeah, I do. Says, How do you explain rhyme and tensor to someone who has never mastered elementary algebra? <laughs> this is clearly a case of unable as opposed to unwilling. I would love to explain such things, but I cannot. I cannot teach my pet hamster differential equations either. Oh, jeez Louise. I, I worry about that kind of arrogance. Yeah. Um, certainly there are some domains that, yes, it may be a high-level science, but can you communicate the implications right. for people's lives? Um, uh, I, I often challenge my doctoral students, um, can you explain your dissertation to your mother? Can you, can you take the jargon out of it and explain it? And, and if you can't, I would, I, would, I would question whether you fully understand what you're, what you're working on. Oh. I don't want to knock this guy in particular, right. but I do think the idea of comparing the general public to a hamster <laughs> no. and saying that I can't explain my research to him, it's dangerous to the enterprise. Mm. Um, it creates resentment uh, among many within the public who feel that they've been condescended or even insulted by people in science. Yeah. And I think that, that that's dangerous. Uh, the cover story in National Geographic this past fall was the war on science. And, and it's in part um, our own fault. And yeah, and again, when the, when the check is written by the people, you may not want to slap that hand. Right. This, this issue is, is more pronounced for public universities and even more pronounced for land-grant universities whose mm. mission is to educate the public. Mm. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break. We're again speaking with Andy, uh, Andrew, Kauf, uh, Andrew Hoffman, who is a professor um, and uh, a wonderful writer, in fact, wrote a great article, Why Academics Are Losing Relevance in Society and How to Stop It. He, again, is a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of Michigan and uses his research um, and, and focus to, uh, to help, I think, in this case, all of us recognize the importance of uh, the synergy between our professors, our academics in the world, and um, the people that, that uh, really need to know what they're learning and, and, and why their roles are so important. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, academics dedicate their lives to making our lives better, supposedly, right? But uh, apparently we don't seem to care or we don't get the message. We don't read what they publish. We don't believe that, you know, in vaccinations to the degree that we might need to. We don't believe in the safety of uh, of um, GMO-produced foods. Um, anyway, what do you think? Do, do you think in the end... 
any of this matters. Again, earlier we were talking about a, a Pew Research uh, study that said 87% of scientists accept natural selection plays a role in evolution, but only 32% of the public agree. 88% of scientists think that genetically modified foods are safe to eat, but only 37% of the public agree. 87% of scientists believe that climate change is mostly due to human activity, and only 50% of the public agrees. And then every state has a public university, and yet none of us listen to, understand, or agree with um, a lot of what's going on in these universities, that divide is uh, is problematic in my eyes. It's also um, the, the, the topic of a wonderful article we found in the conversation, Why Academics Are Losing Relevance in Society and How to Stop It. And joining us to talk about his article, Dr. Andy J. Hoffman, who is a professor of sustainable enterprise at the University of, Mich- uh, of Michigan. Andy Hoffman, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Matt. I I really think this is important um, as a topic because it's it also might even it shows a little bit of the divide of um, it's almost institutional. It's kind of those that are in their ivory tower. It's kind of middle America versus, uh, I don't know, uh, the coasts. Um, What's going on when it comes to. Is it is it millennials? Is it this new generation that's happening, or is it is it kind of an overall uh, issue that we're facing where we just don't trust the academic world? Well, no, I think we're we're in a phase right now where people are distrusting the institutions of society writ large, and academia is one of them. Um, but I also I think that um, whenever you know the distrust of science is not across the board. Um, certain issues um, become caught up in what we might call the culture wars. Other issues do not. Mm. And uh, particularly issues that challenge people's beliefs or their behavior, uh, it's met with resistance. And that's, that's a natural thing. If I came out with some kind of conclusion that says you have to change how you live your life, then you're naturally going to be hesitant, if not resistant. And so it's, it's, it's the job to figure out how to communicate science better. And there's a lot of activity in that area that, that, again, in this in this piece, I was trying to say there are changes afoot. And so there are centers growing around the country on the topic of science communication. And the, the National Academies, the AAAS, have been starting to focus on this, the Sloan Foundation. Um, there's a lot of activity to start to say, okay, we need to become better communicators of science to the public. And, and that gives me hope. And incentivizing it, right? Like, I mean, if yep. tenure, is, is this a, is this a uh, could this be a construct or a reality or a realization of what tenure creates? It is. And then, you know, the reward system dictates the behavior. And it can become so implanted that even when someone becomes a full professor, and that review shouldn't matter anymore. And the whole purpose of full professor, or even just tenure, was to grant a professor the freedom to do things that aren't necessarily down the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, uh, to my mind, that's what should happen when we become um, at least tenured, and if not full, for sure. Um, so, how do we change the culture yeah. of the university? And uh, the first place to start is the reward system. And, and I do see some changes. Um, typically, at the end of every year, I and all my colleagues across the country, across the world, we do an annual report, and we have to show what we did for the year in research, teaching, and service. And it's usually research for me, at least my school, and most 
research-oriented schools. It's research first and then teaching a service. The Ross School of Business, where I teach, actually added a fourth category called practice, and how are you impacting the world mm. of practice? And for a school of business, that would be the business world. For a school of policy, that would be government, and you go through the boards. And that is adding a new dimension to the conversation. Is, but but, but in, like in your school, a research institution, research would be much more heavily weighted than service, for example. Yes. And service, but uh, service is meant service to the academic community. So I sit on okay. committees uh, and okay. things like that. That's not really service outside the university. It's service to our professional societies and things like that. Do, do you ever see a, a sense in the future that even at a research institution, that, like if, if they were going to adopt your practice um, – where they all they also start including practice into the tenure review. Do you see a day where practice could equal research? That's a great question, and uh, um, I, I would. Uh, this is my editorial opinion. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would say that day is is far off. At the okay. end of the day, we are our primary job is to create research and teach our students. Hmm. And then bringing it to the public. I and mean, we have 24 hours in a day. Right, and right. So there's a limited ability to do this, but schools are bringing in others to help. But I would also add that I see a, a shift in the younger generation coming into academia that want to make a difference in the real world. And the question then becomes, will academia spit them out or will they change academia? And mm. I'm hopeful it's the latter that will happen in part because I see movement Across the university, conversations among university presidents, deans, journal editors, hmm. professors. Um, I organized, I helped organize a conference here at the University of Michigan in May um, 2015 on academic engagement in public and political discourse and asking, is there a problem and, and what should we do about it? The opening panel was four university presidents, um, Michigan, Virginia, Dartmouth, and Arizona State. Oh, wow. That tells me that this is an issue that is reaching the highest levels of academia and questions are being asked. And, and um, Mark Schlissel, the president of the University of Michigan, had some very thoughtful things about us becoming perhaps a bit too careerist and staying inside our comfort zones and saying that if we just become focused on the letters after our names and the accolades we have, then, quote, unquote, the willingness of society to support us will decrease. Uh-huh. Do you, do, what about um, – I mean I look at it too. That, so you, the, the researchers are always trying to get published. They're always trying to get into the academic journals. But these academic journals in a weird way also seem to have um, – I mean I guess they are – maybe they don't have a marketable ability. But why couldn't they? Why couldn't some of the great academic journals that people are writing in also create a blog or something that is more easily accessible to the rest of the public? Some of them are starting to do that. Um, that is starting to happen, and that's where social media is changing things. Um, I would add that you know it, it's not easy for an academic to take uh, some high-level sure. academic research right. and 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 translate it and, and even write it in an accessible way. Uh, it's 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 akin to being multilingual. Right. And can you speak English and can you speak French? It's the same as saying can you speak the academic speak that has extreme precision. Every word matters in an academic paper and then bring it to the real world and understand the differing conceptions of, for example, uncertainty. Mm. In a scientific sense, it's its variance around the mean. In the general public, it means, well, maybe you just don't know. Exactly. And these kinds of things are challenging. It's very challenging. And then write a narrative that is accessible. I can read you even from some of my own papers where you'd, you'd look up and say, what did you just write? 
right, and then have to di- dissect it. Well, we do that all the time because we'll have guests on, and then I, I'll try to like, I'll try to insinuate that there was a causal effect, and they'll have to clarify there wasn't a causal effect. There was, and, and then they have to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just it is it's a completely different language, and and you know I don't know that it needs to get. Um, to that level, what I found just looking at like the the, the examples you've talked about with the conversation um, and other and other magazines or or, uh, or sources, it's the people that are going there are, are are much more conversant anyway. They seem to already have the gift and the ability. A lot of the professors we talk to already have their own blog in order to reach the public and their students. And so it's kind of like natural selection again, right? Those that are more naturally able to do it are drawn to it, and those that aren't stay in the lab. Yeah. But I would add one more dimension, if we can just get all the issues on the table. You know, so now what these places are doing is using the powers of social media to take information from the academy straight to the public. And I, and I think that's great. And then we have the comments section, which mm. ideally would be a place for civil discourse. Yeah. And very often it is not. Right. And you saw Na- National Public Radio's announcement recently to eliminate the comments section. What was amazing about that is if you look at the data, I mean, it's a very small number of people that are commenting. Right. And they're commenting right. a lot. And yeah. so anytime I have a post related to climate change, I can tell you what's going to happen in the comments section. Someone writes in and says climate change is a hoax. Someone mm-hmm. writes back, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, I'm not. You're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. And down it goes. <laughs> exactly. And that is not helpful to educating the public. So I don't know what we do no. about that, but it's a brave new world. We have to figure out social media. Well, and the comment section, I think, on at, at every newspaper, on every – I mean, that is that has been the age-old issue is – because it is, it's the it's the one percent that really dirty the pool. Yeah. So we then and pull so, it. And you you can you can moderate it, but that requires time and money. Right. Exactly. And, and that's that's very very hard. Do um where do we go from here? So I guess we we want to keep pushing, uh you know. So we have some incentives. So there are incentives to be you know almost a practitioner versus just the researcher um, or a scholar. What are some other ways that we can incentivize it? Or how can I incentivize it at my own university just locally? Well, begin the conversation. And um, I think there are a series of questions. We, we, I, would, I would argue that we need to create sort of a handbook, um, a handbook for professors on how to work engagement into their career safely and a handbook for administrators on how to create an environment where it's safe to do this and even rewarded to do this. Hmm. And we're really at square one. I mean, what is public engagement? I mean, should I be on this show? Yeah, I think so. Should I be on Rush Limbaugh? Should I be on Bill Maher? Right, Um, right. I don't know. I I, I don't know. But it's getting into infotainment. Is that really where we should be? And I have colleagues who say, absolutely. Anywhere you can reach the public, do it. Then, you know, what is the role of the academic? And um, Roger Pilka, Jr. has written a very interesting book, a very provocative book called um, The Honest Broker. And to his mind, the academic should take all the information and just put it out there and let, let the chips fall where they may. Or some scientists think, no, you should narrow it and only put out what are we think is the the pertinent information and mm-hmm. that's a provocative position well then the, i mean the pseudo academics are going to hack your stuff up anyway exactly it's so tough you know and that's another part of it is is teaching others you know um uh, i engagement is messy yeah you cannot control your message 
Um, and that is something you're going to have to accept. Mm -hmm. And some scientists won't do this unless the reporter will publish their abstract verbatim, which ain't going to happen. Uh, engagement can be hostile. I have an inbox for hate mail because I do it on climate change. Oh, that's true. I also think engagement can be rewarding. And this is where the young people are coming in and really want to make a difference in the real world. And I also think it can prove your research, but it has to change your publication strategy. The typical mode is I spend all this time, I produce this paper. Once it's published, I put a line on my resume and I move on. I may give an academic talk or two, but n this thinking says, no, go on BYU radio, write a yeah. blog in the conversation, get the information out there, make it accessible. And that takes time and it takes time away from the next academic paper. Oh, it does. And well, we, and we appreciate because you're walking your talk. I mean, this is and you've already got one of the hottest, you know, debated issues on earth and yet if we could just get to the real data we we might not have to debate it but oh. mm -hmm. well we appreciate you uh, Andy Hoffman thank you so much keep up the great work there at uh, University of Michigan um wow it's 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 a it's a very important thing it is really one of the reasons i wanted to do this show because i've seen the best research that exists about marriage and family and no one knows about it no one knows about it because these academics can't get the message out. They don't they can't communicate it. And then you see guys like Andy Hoffman that are writing and trying to create a dialogue and a discourse about it. But you can also predict the way academics moves, it'll take 30 years. Or just a lot of really innovative young professors to to take this thing on. Ah. <sighs> Fun stuff. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. It's there. You just got to be looking for it. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Now, so think about uh, our last discussion with uh, Dr. Hoffman. Again, you see the duality, right? So it's almost like you can't be smart and informed um, and still have um, a discussion. So the academics, it's, they've made it an, an either-or proposition. Either you're an academic researcher, legit, viable researcher, or you're popularizing the science, you can't be both. And yet um, some of the movements I've seen and I follow, so I would probably be a pop, a pop scientist because I'm not doing any research, but I talk to a lot of those that do and I read thoroughly their writings and it's amazing what information is out there. Uh, like I've said a million times on the show, I believe the cure of cancer exists and I believe it's in five laboratories but these labs are not incentivized to talk to each other. And because they're not, they're actually disincentivized to share information because somebody's got to come up with the cure and then they can make the billions of dollars. But if we could incentivize talk and dialogue, there's something really powerful there. One of the areas where I did most of my research um, in graduate school was in the area of dialogue theory, which was communication theory. And it actually was created by a guy named David Bohm. And David Bohm just so happened to be a, uh, an academic who really was the, the heir, hand-picked heir to um, 
to Albert Einstein. He was supposed to take Albert's chair. And but D- David Bohm was most known for not replacing Einstein. He was he was most known for creating a communication theory because he realized sitting in a room full of physicists that none of these people could talk to each other. And we're not going to solve the problems of the world if we can't talk. So somehow we need to, just like we do with Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, we need to somehow bridge academia and the general public. It's in the and, folks. We call that the space between. It's always going to be in bridging the space between people. That is the goal of this show. Bridge the space between people. We'll take a break. That's hour number one. We'll come back next hour. More fun, more ideas right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Hour number two of the program. How are you? Good to have you back. You made it. Hey, uh, so much to get into today. Today, by the way, is Bring Your Teddy Bear to Work Day. This is the day that if you have a teddy bear, buckle him into your car, drive him into into work. I don't know if I ever had a teddy bear. You didn't? No. Oh. Well, that explains a lot. I think I had, like, stuffed dogs. Ah, cute. Maybe, like, underdog. Remember underdog, the superhero? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had an underdog. Yeah. My, in fact, we ought to post it. I have the cutest picture ever, or video ever of my granddaughter. Oh, right. Make yourself more wanting, like, appealing and relevant to the audience. Yeah. Go ahead. At Costco, because they have a huge teddy bear, a $2,000, no, $200 oh. teddy bear, and yeah, this, those, my granddaughter, every time she sees it, those man-sized she teddy freaks bears. out. Yeah. She goes nuts. Does yeah. she like it? She loves like, it. Like, okay. She wants a My piece kid of would that. be afraid of it. <laughs> Really? Because <laughs> yeah, it's like it's huge. Does anybody ever buy those, though? You always see yeah. them, but you never see somebody walk out there, with You one. know those millionaire impulse buyer people? Mm. Then the funny thing is, is trying to watch them shove it into a, some Mercedes coupe. <laughs> Do you think Trump would be doing better if he took a giant teddy bear with him everywhere? Yeah, I think if Trump, I think that was Chris Christie's job, and then he offended Chris. Is that a fat joke? <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. But... Donald never seems more human than when he's holding a child. I mean, it's awkward, but yeah. it also humanizes the man. Yeah. The other day when he was holding that kid, he did look different than he did normally. So I think a teddy bear could help. The kid, it, the kid had a better better hairdo than Trump did, though. Did. You know what I mean? He, he was he, having a better hair day. It looked more normal than Trump's hair. So. Hey, I told you over and over um, that I I'm buying a I'm buying a I'm buying a car that self drives. I think you keep talking about it. I don't know if you're ever actually going to do it. I'm going to do it. I am going to do it. I Well, seeing as there's no car that self-drives. Yeah, there is. No, what you want is a car that you never have to drive. Well, no, I actually – because I love exist. driving. You I, want one that assists you in driving. I want one that – once I'm once I'm tired of driving, I just flip a switch to autopilot and the thing drives me home. Well, there's only one car that has autopilot, and they're actually there's debate on whether they want to change the name of that from autopilot to assisted driving. Yeah, because people are you know that guy Florida watching a movie allegedly Harry Potter as he's right. flying down the interstate and runs the car underneath a semi truck and dies. 
Well, yeah, but that, again, and today we're talking about this, more people are dying without autopilot than with autopilot. Absolutely. So is there going to be a day that if you are a person that still chooses to drive – A combustion engine car. And a car and, that oh, you yeah, have yeah. to steer. Right. Um, you are going to – are you eventually going to be looked at as negatively sure. as somebody that starts smoking in the middle of an airplane? One thing our society is really good at is shaming somebody yeah. who doesn't do what we right. do. Yeah. You will be shamed. You will be shamed. So we will get into that discussion. I think it's it's a fascinating discussion. But if all of a sudden we could cut, you know, 94% of the crashes that cause inju- injuries and fatalities are attributable, attributable to human choice or mm-hmm. error. Mm-hmm. What if you could eliminate 94% of those? I don't know, Matt. I don't trust the technology. Not yet, but in 10 years, it'll be there. I don't know, Matt. It's already there. If we can land... Human judgment, always better than a computer. <laughs> See, there's the debate. <laughs> uh, if you can land a, an airplane at, what, 200 miles an hour on an aircraft carrier, yeah, you probably could get your Prius. I don't think we grasp in society how much is uh, automated or assisted yeah. in what we're doing. Right. We think like we have all this control, but I think there's a lot of help. Right. And all this is is using more technology to tell you that there's a car in your blind spot right. so you don't run them over and cause a, a pointless accident. Well, and isn't that what we already do with airplanes? I mean, airplanes are pretty much flying. The pilots aren't out there making every decision. No. The, the airplanes are pretty much getting you from runway to runway. Now, they do fly quite a bit. And if you talk to a pilot, they would take great offense at what you just said. Well, they'd have to or they'd be unemployed. <laughs> yeah. Except in the end, their job is to land the plane. Yes. But Once it, the, in between takeoff and landing, it's, it's pretty much – It's a straight line. It's a computer running you. Yeah. I mean, you, they still make decisions and then somebody's got to go get the drinks. Well, yeah. So, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to hear from pilots. You will. They they do a great job. However, if we could cut down on millions of deaths a year, problem solved. Mm-hmm. Or, but then, what about the guy that just loves a good drive? Well, you just flip a switch and it's you. I know, but then I'll, then every computer around you is you're going li- crazy. Yeah, you're liable. Human driving, human driving. <laughs> so we'll talk about that. We also uh, are celebrating today Old Farmers Day. By the way, farmers, hmm. so much of their work now is done compu- by computer. Well, even because, so, these no these new tractors, these yeah. new uh, harvesters, they're all computerized, so it they pretty much can turn them on by themselves. Well, there's a and whole step out and let the let the tractor do the work. Yeah, and then to pay for the tractor, you have to buy neighboring farms, putting other farmers out of business to pay yeah. for the bigger farm, and, or buy special seeds that cannot not grow. Right, and then they blow into the neighbor. Yeah, no. Uh, sorry, Jeff. It's it's Old Farmer's Day. It's not Farmer's Only Day. It's Old Farmer's. This is the hip version of the Old my, Farmer's my, Day. I've ruined my son. He, he'd sing this song this way. Really? He sings Jingle Bells this way. Yeah, Mary he, Had a Little yeah. Lamb is Your a heavy metal song. A heavy metal kid. He's like, jingle bells, jingle. Well, that's his dad's a heavy metal guy. So, problem solved. We will uh, we'll get to all of this fun. But first, and in fact, by the way, uh, we have some really cool stories about the fastest um, arrest ever made in pulling over speedy cars, all because of technology. Pretty cool story coming up. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen and the headline. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? 
Hillary Clinton has expanded her lead since Sunday's debate against Donald Trump, according to a Reuters tracking poll released Tuesday. Clinton beat Trump by eight percentage points among likely voters, 45 percent to 37 percent, up from a five-point lead last week. 18 percent of voters said they would support neither Trump nor Clinton. On Tuesday in Miami, Al Gore made his first appearance alongside Hillary Clinton in the 2016 campaign trail. Gore, who served as Bill Clinton's vice president, was the 2000 Democratic presidential nominee, spoke passionately about addressing climate change and an attempt to rally young voters, a demographic Clinton has struggled to woo. Your vote really, really counts a lot, Gore said, and he referred to his paper-thin margin of loss to George W. Bush in 2000 as evidence. You can consider me Exhibit A. Up until now, Gore has avoided getting involved in the election. In an op-ed published Tuesday on CNN, President Obama revealed we're well on our way to getting to Mars. This week, Obama said the government will meet with private innovators, including America's scientists, engineers, innovators, and students, to suss out a plan to make dreams of sending humans to Mars and back by the 2030s into reality. Obama argued it's an absolute necessary leap to take, both for a better understanding of our environment and ourselves. And finally... Uh, Ronald McDonald is a big topic nowadays because of the clowns that are uh, popping up. We talked about the clown epidemic before. So a lot of people have been creeped out by all these weird clowns walking around trying to scare people. And so uh, McDonald's announced on Tuesday the company would be downplaying mascot Ronald McDonald's role at community and family events for the time (laughs) being. Um, He will, in other words, be taking a hiatus. He needs Mm. to... uh, think about his yeah. costume yeah. and stuff he well because it's because he got beat up i'm assuming that's might be part of it what about jack in the box well he's not really a clown he's more of like just a white he's ball a, he's head a toy yeah. yeah yeah but if you saw that white ball head you might freak up, out a little bit yeah it's true what about that crazy creepy king from um burger king he's not a clown no, but he looks like a clown. And he's pretty much gone. They have those chicken fries that are with oh, the yeah. Cheeto dust on them, so they're fine. Nasty chicken fries. <laughs> it's you know what you know who's loving it is Wendy. Because no one's oh, yeah. afraid of Wendy's, Wendy. Wendy's, Wendy's doing great right Wendy now. Wendy is such a great mascot. <laughs> Just kind of an awkward redheaded kid. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. Uh, Jeff. It's so mean. It's creepy, Jeff. Creepy clown music. Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order? (laughs) (laughs) Holy Ronald! This is scary. Um, Well, thank you, Sadie. Appreciate that. Ah, boy. That's some scary clown stuff. Clowns are... They're fine. People like clowns. Some people enjoy them. But at this moment, it is a problem. There is uh, growing hysteria in Britain. Yeah. Over the clowns. There was oh, a boy. student who spread terror this week by running across the campus of Brunel University in West London dressed as a killer clown wielding a chainsaw. There was a creepy a creepy clown in Leicestershire in the Midlands who frightened a resident strolling through a cemetery next to a school. The clown was brandishing an axe, according to Facebook post. No. A com, a com, it says, uh, accompanied by a blurry photograph. There's a pair of male clowns in a black van who approached two girls on their way to school in Essex, inviting them to a birthday party. As a result of that scare, the high school in Essex forbade students to leave the school premises during the lunch hour. Sheesh. 
clown crazes, a mix of childish pranks, more serious. You know, it's just it's just internet stuff. It's internet stuff. And then people run around with a mask to scare people. Or in this case, the rumors are chainsaws and axes in Britain. Which well, is we, more... we told you yesterday, but I want I've got to play it again. Um, BYU Broadcasting is putting out a brand new program to because there's so many clowns out there. They're trying to basically they're capitalizing on all of the clowns. And uh, it, it kind of parallels Dog the Bounty Hunter. Hi, I'm Bob, and I used to be a clown for birthday parties, corporate events, and political conventions. But now I track down dangerous clowns and apprehend them for a living. Here's a sneak peek at my new show, Bob the Clowny Hunter. I'm the Bob, the Big Bad Bob, the Clowny Hunter. Okay, rule number one in clown hunting, you got to make sure you don't come off as a threat. That way you can get close to them without them suspecting a thing. That's why I dress like one of their own when I'm working. I've got my flower water squirter thing, I've got my big red nose, as well as my squeaky shoes. Let's go catch us a clown. Okay, our first clown is a real scumbag. He's been freaking out tourists, getting in their faces, and making rude hand gestures. Oh, oh, there he is. That's weird. My clown outfit is different than any I've ever seen. Oh, whatever, these guys are getting sicker and more twisted every day. Let's go get them. Excuse me, are you Pierre? You are? Well then, you're under arrest. Hey, 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 what are you doing? Hey, why are you pretending to run away in a windstorm? What are you doing with your hands? Pierre, if you don't settle down, I'm going to have to pepper spray you in the face. Pierre, put down that imaginary gun. That's it. You're coming with me, you slime. Uh, okay, so it uh, turns out that Pierre was actually a mime, so uh, that was my bad. Uh, but my lawyers have just informed me that mimes are a kind of a clown, so uh, clown cops. Be sure to check out my new show, Bob the Clowny Hunter. I'm the Bob, the big bad Bob, the clowny hunter. going to be awesome that little horn at the end that is so ominous because he's not just he's not like a bounty hunter he's a clowny hunter those are worse do you use the horn to lure the clown yeah. out is that what it is okay. yeah it's like a clown call well because i think he said you have to kind of make it seem like you're not a threat so he yeah. dresses like yeah. he's a clown and he was a clown yeah so I mean, he knows the mind of the clown. Yeah. He knows where to where to track him. Totally. That's an interesting show. By the way, coolrophobia uh, cool, cool is the fear of clowns or jesters. Why isn't it just clownophobia? Well, because it also has to include jesters. You know, we just uh, talked mimes. about it. It's academic. Academics. They it's just all make academics. things tough. They're just trying to talk down to you. Yeah. Just dismiss it. It's fine. <laughs> I, I don't have coolrophobia, but my kids do. I think, again, this is a generational thing. Kind of sounds like you're afraid of Kool-Aid. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm afraid of a big red pitcher of something crashing through a wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, okay, back to the topic at hand. Mm. Self-driving cars. And uh, in a few minutes, we'll bring on our guest uh, to talk to us about does when we have self-driving cars, does that mean we just will no longer – 
need to drive our own car. And there's some people that we're, they will hate that because they love driving their own car and some won't tr- trust the technology. But if if it ends up saving lives, it saves lives. We, we um, found a really interesting story about a Ford GT test drivers mm-hmm. that were caught going 101 miles an hour in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. Okay. Now, these were prototype cars. Right. They yeah. weren't even like – they, they were people that worked for Ford – who are taking cars to test them at high altitude. I think it was in Colorado, correct? Right. And they were caught speeding and, you know, having fun in their sports cars. Well, and they, they got, I mean, once you're going, you know, 60 to 75 miles over the speed limit, then you can't just mail it in. They, yeah. they The judge is saying, no, you got to come back and face the judge. Um, so, I mean, and they were over 75 miles an hour. Sometimes um, when the when the cops finally got them, they they couldn't catch up to them. I mean, they when they finally saw them, they couldn't catch up to them. So they had right. to radio ahead, and eventually they they were able to cite these people, and they were cited for going 101 in a 50 mile an hour zone. And now they've got to go see the judge. But see, this is why you need self driving cars because right. if if this had been a self driving car, or like just a fully automated car, then this would have been the fastest arrest. In the West. Now it's time for the fastest arrest in history. Johnson, we have several 2017 Ford GT prototypes doing twice the speed limit. Those scumbags. I'm actually not in a position to initiate a stop, but I believe those are self-driving cars. Let me just shut them down from my end by pressing a few buttons. Did that work? Yep, thanks, Johnson. No problem. Back to work. Problem solved. Yeah. By the way, just in between drinks. Yeah. Or sips. Nice frosty Coca-Cola or something. That's yeah. why you need self-driving cars. Just a, the press of a button and a cop could probably just shut you down. High-speed chases, all they'd have to do is like send an impulse, whatever they call it, a pulse to yeah. your car, an electric pulse. Boom, shut it right down. Yeah. That should be a Zach, like a Zach Galifianakis show, except we should call it Between Two Sips. That's a great. That's a great idea. Instead of between two ferns, that's the fastest arrest and the fastest high speed chase ever. I mean, just ended. Boop. Yep. Well, coming up next, Andrew Maynard will be joining us, talking to us about the many, many questions that uh, this new technology could be posing. Is there going to be a day where, if you want to drive your own car, and you're putting everyone else in jeopardy? That you could be ostracized simply because you like driving your car? Hmm. It also could be a lifesaver. Many, many lives saved. We'll be getting into this wonderful discussion because I, I need it desperately, quickly, so I can sleep all the way to work. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. As we're trying to get on uh, the phone, uh, one of our great guests about these high-tech cars and the high-tech policies that need to to be made around those cars, we wanted to uh, change the subject a little bit. Five things that should never have happened to me in public. You know, it's interesting how our brains work, right? Sometimes you can't remember your own kids' names or how to make your favorite recipe, but you somehow remember the time you tripped in front of your crush or left your zipper down during a presentation. 
it seems like the things we want to most forget are often the things that are so deeply ingrained in our brains. So uh, how do we get rid of some of these embarrassing moments out of our head? Well, who better to teach us than our producer, Leanna Tan, will help us learn how to do that by sharing with us five of her own embarrassing moments. You know, I've been getting some pretty sleepless nights lately, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I mean, I'm trying to eat healthy, manage my time, and go to bed at a decent hour, but then I thought, what if I have post-traumatic stress disorder? I immediately started Googling it, and Mayo Clinic taught me that post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental health condition that's triggered by a terrifying event, either experiencing it or witnessing it. Symptoms may include flashbacks, nightmares, and severe anxiety, as well as uncontrollable thoughts about the event. That explains a lot. I mean, usually this is a pretty serious thing that affects war veterans or victims of abuse, but I think I've developed it from experiencing pretty scarring, embarrassing moments. Ugh. But then I read that one of the best methods of treatment is to talk about my traumatic events to a group of people. I gotta do it. So I guess here it goes. Five things that should have never happened to me in public, but did. Number one, going to the city fair with my older sister and having her suddenly pretend she had a mental disability and couldn't speak any English except the word food at the top of her lungs every few seconds until I found her some dinner. What was I supposed to do? I grudgingly find her food or I endure everyone's glares as they judge me for not taking care of my poor disabled sister. And I must say, I do not condone her actions. Number two, being convinced to randomly break into song and dance in the middle of Walmart. Yes, one moment the innocent shoppers were enjoying their quiet Walmart experience, and the next moment we were grabbing wrapping paper rolls and massive candy canes and singing and dancing in synchronization. At the time, I thought I was bringing the world a holly jolly Christmas, but now I realize I was scarring their memories for life. I'm sure all those mobile phone videos are still in the depths of YouTube somewhere. Keep Number three, taking choir warm-ups so seriously, I pulled a muscle and had to call my mom to take me home. No, no, our junior high choir was not that intense. We, like every other normal choir, liked to roll our necks and uh, shake out our shoulders before singing. Pretty harmless stuff. But of course, the only person who could manage to find a way to injure themselves during choir warm-ups was me. Let me tell you. It was a long walk of shame holding my pulled neck muscle all the way to the principal's office. <sighs> Number four, being dressed as a Christmas elf and put in front of a camera broadcasting to an entire city of elementary kids. Nope, I had no idea what I was doing. But duty calls when your boss points you out at a work meeting an hour before air. I have to admit, my elf costume was pretty sad. Here's my lifelong more like I belonged in Neverland than the North Pole. I don't know which one was more traumatizing, being in bright green tights in front of hundreds of people or being called Elf Liana by the entire population of grade school kids any time I went out in public. No more and then having to endure it every year I go home for Christmas. And time would heal Number five, accidentally pushing the emergency alarm button in a Japanese restroom at a train stop. In my defense, there are so many buttons in Japanese bathrooms. I was in a rush and couldn't figure out which was the right one, so I just decided to push all of them. <laughs> 
then of course was completely alarmed when the door slid open and I was greeted by a breathless security officer and many foreign faces blankly staring at me. Whoops. You know what? Actually, I do feel better. So just know, if you've experienced any traumatizingly embarrassing stories, you're not alone. It helps to just get it out there in the open. It might not cure having a crazy older sister who gets a weird sense of pleasure out of your embarrassment. But it can help with the flashbacks, the nightmares, and the severe anxiety. (sighs) I think this means that I'll be sleeping a lot more peacefully tonight. Great. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. More Americans are being killed in car crashes every year. In uh, in fact, in 2012 alone, 32,000 people were killed in car uh, and automobile accidents. New studies show that 94% of the crashes that cause injuries and fatalities are attributable, attributable to human choice or error. That leads to a fascinating question that deserves some attention. Could driving your own car become as socially frowned upon as other risky habits like smoking? When Once we have all this, these uh, self-driving cars and it's decreasing the, uh, the death rate on the roads, when you choose to drive your own car, it's, uh, it's a pretty detrimental behavior, isn't it? Well, our next guest, Dr. Andrew Maynard, is a professor in the School of Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. He's here to talk with us about this subject and uh, to, to give us the latest on his thinking and research. Dr. Maynard, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thanks. This is great. Thank you. Uh, I, I, to me, I'm excited for this future of self-driving cars. I love driving myself, but I also would love to sleep. Why not? Yeah. While we're at it, <laughs> so you know, I, I I feel the same. I feel the same on that morning commute. I mean, really, it's. I mean, if all of a sudden we could eliminate thirty, let's say thirty thousand deaths a year, this could be one of the greatest innovations in public health ever. It's quite compelling, isn't it? Um, and of course, it's fraught with difficulties. I mean, two of the biggest ones, of course, being people love to drive and they love that autonomy. Um, but also, we need to get through this transition period from where we are now with um, very, very crude self-driving cars to somewhere in the future where we've got the, the problem cracked. Right. And I guess with that and with all this innovation comes new technology or new policy making, new rules, and uh, uh, probably along with it, a lot of other you know, social issues um, about even how we shame those that still choose to drive, how we deal with people's rights who want to drive. Um, how did you personally get into to wanting to research this? So I've been involved with uh, new technologies, emerging technologies for many, many years now, looking at both the, the risks and the benefits from a social perspective. And I'm really interested in um, how you make new technologies work for society, where the glitches are, where the hurdles are, and how you get over them. Um, A lot of the time, it's actually the social side, which is the trickier side, rather than just getting the technology right. Because you you have to get people to do it, right? They've got to participate, or you end up fighting it, and then that creates other problems. That's exactly it. If you don't include people in the process of developing a a new tech, you run a really high chance of them deciding they don't like it and throwing it out of the window. 
is and one of the things I guess that we could bring up is the, the stigma that could be attached. There is a stigma to somebody, for example, that you know lights up a cigarette in the middle of a bus um, where it's not where it's not appropriate or where it's not allowed. Um, and there's this inherent uh, you know view toward that person as being almost antisocial. Do you sense that in the future of driving and self-driving cars, will the person that wants to be a driver of their own car be seen with that same type of stigma? I think it could go that way. And if you look at smoking, it's only in recent years that that stigma has really begun to to take hold in a a big way. And to many of us working in public health, it was almost a surprise where we saw how rapidly that that switch was. And that makes me think that we could see the same with with driving. And of course, at the moment, there is no stigma at all. We're, We're so enamored with this idea of being able to drive ourselves, it's almost unimaginable. To, to think of a world where it's seen as a bad thing to be driving your own car. But I think we'll find as these self-driving technologies improve to the extent that they are demonstrably safer than, than people driving their own cars, we may well see the same switch, especially when we begin to realize how many people's lives are going to be saved. It's Well, and I guess as part of this, it's interesting to notice how much risk we are all willing to take right now without ever thinking about it. Right, it is. I mean, those those levels are shocking. I, roughly 32,000 people a year killed in the States, and then well over 2 million people injured um, in road crashes. And in fact, I'm living here in Arizona pretty much every day. Somewhere in the, the metro region, there is a, a very, very serious crash, number of crashes. Um, and so when you begin to look at the figures, it actually makes sense to work out how we can reduce those injuries and deaths. Hmm. And th- I mean, that's just... That's the the injury, the death side of it, plus the, just the social, the emotional pain of it all. But I mean, this yep. this could put insurance companies out of business. This is <laughs> this is enormous. It, it is. It, it is incredibly uh, disruptive. And there's already a little bit of chatter beginning about what happens when driving becomes so safe um, that the insurance companies have to deal with it. Um, do they put up the premiums so high that, that people can't afford it? Um, it's not clear at all what those, those additional consequences, knock-on consequences, are going to be yet. Well, how, how do you see this rolling out? And, I mean, I know they're doing tests. I know Google... Um, Uber have self-driving cars, and every once in a while we hear a story. We know that um, Tesla has kind of an autopilot on their on their cars. We just heard that Porsche and Mercedes are now starting to work to create kind of an infrastructure for the country in uh, in these kind of fast electrical or electro uh, what is it electricity uh, refilling stations. How do, how do you see this moving forward to a point where we are in a world of just self-driving cars? So, so we've almost reached a tipping point with uh, the technology. We're not quite there yet, but over the last probably three years, we've seen a shift from this being uh, a somewhat futuristic imaginary technology to it now being un- not uncommon in some places to actually see these Uber and, and Google test cars going around driving themselves. And, of course, Tesla have made a, a massive splash, not only with their, um, their, their autopilot feature, but the fact that they now claim that within the next 10 years they're going to completely revolutionize the self-driving car business. And, of mm. course, that's what Uber are looking at as well. So I, I think we've just about reached that point where we're flipping from this sounding almost like science fiction 
to it, it being normal and um, people thinking that, of course, this is what's going to happen. Um, and because of that, I wouldn't be at all surprised if within the next 10 years or 10 years' time, we, there, we, we see self-driving vehicles as being the norm rather than the exception. Mm. I mean, Ford just said they will have, within five years, self-driving cars at an affordable level. Yep, yep. So most of the major car companies are now investing heavily here. So Ford in the States, Volvo over in Europe, and a number of others, are in, uh, they, they've obviously recognized that this is the future of the automobile. Mm. Now, uh, I can only, and we can't even choose a president, for heaven's sakes, Andrew. So <laughs> how are we going to choose the, the way through this? And, and, and I can only imagine the pressure Congress is going to have on... Um, with from insurance companies, from individual citizens and their rights. Right, right. So, so that's really hard to, to map out at the moment. And uh, this is what I do, try and understand the, the hidden risks almost, if you like. And, and those are two great ones, the, the social pressure, the, the insurance um, pressure. I think what we may find with this is that things that are developed under the radar so fast and develop so much momentum that it's hard to resist. Um, and that's partially indicated with the, these new rules that the Department of Transportation have come out with to guide the development of self-driving cars, which are really smart regulations in that what they do is they give manufacturers a pathway towards developing really effective, safe technologies rather than blocking them. And because of this, I think by the time people wake up and realize that something big's happening, there'll already be so much momentum built up that it's very hard to resist it. No, I loved your um, insight into that because it's, it, it doesn't always seem like <laughs> that when we turn something over to the government that they do it very well. Sometimes you wonder if it's done the best way possible. But you, you do feel that uh, the Department of Transportation, they've, they've created some really powerful guidelines. Talk about what is it about their guidelines that, that is so impressive to you. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, usually, uh, government regulations can be somewhat heavy-handed, um, basically sort of saying, don't do this, don't do that, and there's a big heavy consequence if you do. Um, but a, a number of scholars, including myself, have begun to realize that this really doesn't work with, with new technologies and the way that society is changed, changing. And so we've been working on an area called responsible innovation, working out what are the, the principles in which you can innovate responsibly, by which I mean you end up with stuff which is successful, it makes money, but it also doesn't harm people. And there are a number of principles there that people have been working um, around, such as anticipating what's coming along down the pike, um, actually being uh, open to new ideas rather than being rigid in your thinking, being really flexible in your thinking, and talking to everybody that's going to be potentially impacted with technology so you can develop them in a way which is responsive to what people are looking for, what people are hoping for. That's not usually what happens with big regulators. But in this case, the Department of Transportation seems to have done that. They, they seem to recognize that this is an incredibly powerful positive technology innovation and they've built this flexibility into their regulations which ensure manufacturers think deeply about the consequences of what they do but they open up ways of going forwards which allow them to be as safe and responsive as possible hmm. um, and it's, it's one of the first examples I've, I've seen certainly in the states where you've had this this really sort of responsive um, adaptable approach to regulation I mean really it's it can. It's going to help on so many other fronts. I was just thinking commerce, transportation. I mean, the trucking industry is going to be, you know, innovated. Um, plus, construction, uh, redirecting of traffic, traffic flows, everything. 
could become so much more integrated. It, it could. One of the things that really excites me is for, you know, for decades now, we've lamented the loss of public transportation or the, the poor quality of public transportation in the states. Um, and there's been this big push to, to get away from private transportation cars and, and develop the public transportation infrastructure. And it's failed in part because of how America has been built and this reliance on cars. What I think we'll find is with these automated technologies, we actually leapfrog this debate and we end up with a system which is a hybrid of both public and private transportation that makes all those former problems just dissolve away. Mm. And that to me is incredibly exciting. And also, is it going to become more electric cars, too, as well? I mean, a lot of these seem to be electric cars. Yes. So as soon as you've got an automated system, it makes it far easier to develop a reliance on alternative fuels, electricity obviously being the the, the clear one there. So now you've got this whole system of innovation, which leads to us as being in a very different place to where we are now. Mm. Then I then I I always kind of look to the West. It seems like a lot of times in some of these policies, the West and the and the world we live in in the West, where you know you might it might be twenty miles from your house to the town that you live in. Um, some of these policies, some of these technologies, seem to like they might suffer a little bit. Um, do, do you sense that it will just be a big inner city thing? Is it going to be for the major metropolitan areas or? Is a lot of this technology going to transcend everywhere? You know, my guess is that it's going to pretty much um, be ubiquitous. Mm. So the the one thing we know about future sort of crystal balls is that you're always wrong with those those predictions. Right. Um, But but the reason I say that is I, I think you'll find as the technology begins to get a hold and people begin to realize how beneficial it is, this ability of, of having a, a vehicle that will take you where you want to be without any stress, um, with it being much safer, um, you'll see a lot of new applications develop as people get hold of it. And those are going to be relevant both to rural as well as urban areas. Hmm. Do you, in your article um, in the conversation, will driving your car become the socially unacceptable public health risk that smoking is today? Uh, what about the guy or the gal that just wants to drive their car? Yeah, so, so th- this is a tricky one, and I, I'm speaking as somebody that actually really enjoys driving, uh, especially driving my stick shift, there, there's something sort of really quite pleasurable in being in control of, mm. of your own vehicle. Um, I think there will be real pushback here. So this is one of those hidden risks where you're likely to get pushback because you're taking something away from people that they consider to be important enough to fight for. Um, and I think as a society, we've got to work through that. I mean, the, the one scenario that I paint is the scenario where it becomes so socially frowned upon to drive that you push drivers underground almost, and you almost sort of have those social battles. <laughs> the hope is that there, there is a way around that, that we can actually come to a, an equitable sort of conclusion where people still have that ability to drive themselves um, if they want in areas where they're going to be safe uh, without it necessarily impacting the development of this new technology. Interesting. Is- it's almost – it's like guns in a way. You'll have to go to the gun club. You'll go to the car right. club and you'll drive around on a racetrack. Right, 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 right. It's, it's, 
going to be tough one, though. And I, as with a lot of technologies, sometimes we have to give something up as a society mm. to, to gain something else that we really want. But that's what makes it so important that we have these conversations. Yeah. The one thing we do know that will not work is if some large body, some industry or some government agency imposes on society without us having a say in it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, because then, yeah, then there will be a backlash, it seems like. Yep. Is, I mean, what about driver's ed? What about driver's <laughs> education? These poor these poor kids won't have to go watch all of these fatality movies and and right. see every form of death and mangling. So 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 doesn't doesn't that get really interesting because on one hand you can say isn't it great? I mean anybody can sort of get into a car without having to go through that education and, and that training. On the other hand, what happens when something fails and someone actually needs to get behind the wheel of a vehicle mm. where they've had zero training? And so, again, a, a hidden risk that we've really got to think about. Oh, and can you just now throw your kids in the car and send them to school in the car Yeah, without going yeah. with them? Um, and then what happens when something happens right. to the kids? Yeah, so I, I've thought about that on the surface. This sounds like a wonderful idea. I mean, sort of no more soccer mums. You just shut them right. in the car and they, <laughs> they get there. But who's responsible for those kids? True. And then when the car breaks down, you know, yep. yeah. What do you, wow. This is, it is, I mean, it's, it's, so this is what you do all day? Come on, Andrew. This is, is yes. you just sit and think all day. Well, yeah, think and, and speak to folks like yourself. Um, yeah, there's a little bit more to it than yeah, that. It's, it's, it, it's a pretty good gig. Is it? Um, I mean, it really is. It's it's kind of. A, I guess it's. We have to we have to start these discussions because if, if this entire industry could be up to speed in ten years, that's pretty yep. fast. It, it it is, and that really sort of puts a fine point on on not only talking about it. Um, in, places like this and, and just sort of engaging people, but working out as a society what we actually want to happen here. Mm. Does What scares you, Andrew, in all of your research and in the depth that you've gone into this, what, what keeps you up at night about such a change? That's a really good question. So um, just thinking specifically about these these autonomous vehicles. Um, probably the worst case scenario is if we end up with, with technology gridlock here where we have a, a fantastic idea that could transform society for the better, but it doesn't go anywhere because it's implemented really badly. Mm. So we never ever see the benefits, but we have the downside of it almost but not quite being there. And as a result of that, you still had the road deaths, you still had the road injuries, you have a technology that's just languishing and not going anywhere. Mm. And I mean, so, so, yeah, that's horrible. I, I, right? I was, yeah, I, I, but I was going to say, actually, so there's another thing, actually, which possibly worries me more, and that's a, a messy transition. So, so now you imagine this. You imagine that we get halfway there, um, so now you've got a mixture of self-driving and human-driven cars on the roads, but we don't quite get all the way through the transition. That, I think, is a scenario where you could actually see an increase in danger, hmm. um, simply because you know what humans are like. I mean, we're really quite unpredictable on the road, right. um, but we, we, we work out how to anticipate the crazy things other people are going to do. What I don't know is whether, as humans, we're going to be able to anticipate what the self-driving cars can do, and I don't know whether the self-driving car is going to be anticipating the human craziness. Oh, oh. So, 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 so this is another really worrying concern that in that transition period, things actually get more dangerous, and we've got to work out how to avoid that. Yeah, interesting, because um, I, I read an article, too, about eventually the car is going to have to decide who to hit. 
Yep. <laughs> right. So, I mean, and it has to make a decision. Do I hit a pedestrian or do I hit uh, another car or a motorcyclist? So, I mean, right. if it has to choose between two things, the car will have to make the choice. That, that's right. And that brings up a whole host of, of ethical issues. And that's more likely where you've got this mixture of, of human and non-human mm. um, cars, driven cars. Well, plus the cost. I mean, how do you phase out the 10-year-old car that you're letting your kids drive to school in? And now, you know, eventually, do we just not allow those cars anymore? And I mean, there's like I guess you're saying, there's so much complexity to this issue. There is. And again, this is why it's really got to be sort of worked through as a, a society rather than some organization trying to impose it on us, because that's when things can, can get really squirrely and really weird. Well, and policing. We, we were just making jokes about it earlier about uh, if, if you're in a high tech car and you're in a high speed chase, the police could probably disable a, an electric car fairly easily. <laughs> and which, which sounds which sounds great and, until you're the person and you think that you're being law-abiding in the car and the police try right. to take control anyway. That's yeah. right. I mean, th- think of those yeah. decisions and the rights to um, – just j- yeah, your, your rights anymore and how much information could a police car actually, you know, aggregate or, or accumulate about your car just technologically. I mean, it's – Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and and then, of course – I, I, of course, as soon as you're talking about the, these internet, interconnected cars, and of, of course these self-driving cars are bound to be all connected to the internet, you have the question of somebody hacking them. And mm-hmm. so we already know that um, some of these self-driving cars are hackable. People have demonstrated that. Um, this is a whole new level of cybersecurity issues where somebody can get into your car take control or the, the car's control system, take control of it, mm. um, and basically take that car away from you. That is scary. Talk yep. about, yeah, terrorism. Um, right. What, uh, Andrew, as we wrap it up, what would you just suggest? Where, where do we go to stay up on this? What should we be reading if we're, if we're kind of into it, if we want to, to make sure that we're on the cutting edge of this? Sure. I, so there, I, just sort of keeping tabs on the, the technology via the usual Google channels, but, but there are one or two places worth um, keeping an eye on. First of all, so I, I write my column for the conversation, uh, website, uh, which is a, one of the good places just to keep up on both where the technology is going, but also where thinking is going on how we do this in a, a responsible way so we actually benefit from this. Mm. Um, there are also organizations looking at this. So, for instance, the World Economic Forum just this week has, um, has set up a brand new center in San Francisco um, on what they're calling the, the fourth industrial revolution, which is all about technology interconnectedness and addresses things such as self driving cars. Um, and then, of course, I, I should give a, a plug to, to my own department here at Arizona State University, the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. So this as well is exactly what we do both through our, our research um, and our communication um, and our um, graduate programs as well as an undergraduate program. So, so different areas where you can really begin to get a sense of what's happening in the world around tech innovation and society um, and what's what you really ought to be aware of and how you can become part of building better solutions. Mm, Love it. Well, Dr. Andrew Maynard, thank you so much, and uh, keep up your great work. We'll see you on the road. It it really is. I'm excited for it. But again, look at all those questions. Do you just throw all your kids in the car and say, okay, go, car, go to school and return? And what do you do when you're driving down the road and there's some empty car? (gasps) They're They're wasting resources. Empty cars driving around? Mm. 
Fun stuff, folks. This is your future. And by the way, within 10 years, holy cow, it's going to be a fun future. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, notice the theme that we seem to be seeing emerge on the show today. Lots of future discussion, lots of future issues, you know, a lot of independent needs. If you love driving your car, which I love driving my car, I'd love to be able to turn it on and off. But, uh, you know, for the safety of the whole, is it is it better that we drive our cars off-road if we want to go live dangerously, but once we are on the roads, the freeways, the paid, you know, city, state, federal roads, is that where everybody's got to be driving in the automatic mode? Mm. And what impact does that have? Are you ready to, to share the road quite literally? Are you ready to eliminate, eliminate 94% of the errors that are causing 32,000 deaths, 2 million injuries a year? I mean, all you got to do is probably talk to one person that has lost somebody in an accident, and you know they would probably say, "Let's let's play the game, let's do this thing." So, be ready. There is a cost that comes when you want to, to improve safety. Uh, you might need to lose some of the freedom to be able to make every decision on your way to work. And when you think about it, most of us aren't thinking on the way to work anyway. We're listening to a great show like this that makes you not have to think; just absorb it. Interesting future, folks. Boy, and no matter what, you're sure blessed to be living now at a time and age when, you know, an illness doesn't have to kill you. A baby can actually be taken by cesarean instead of having to die. Power. Power in the future. There is hope. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Such a great show we got for you today. Um, Have you ever had the dream of climbing Everest? I mean, I personally haven't. No, not here. People want to. Why? I don't know. But our guest today did it at the age of 60. Did it. Not Mission dead. accomplished. I mean, <laughs> I feel really good when I go on my one-hour walk because that, you know, seems like I'm, I'm winded. Is that your peak of accomplishment? Yes. Okay. Every day. For this story with this gentleman, I'm more interested in the idea that he achieved a lifelong goal. Yeah. Do you have a lifelong goal? Oh yeah. Something of that sort of survive. I mean, th- of that magnitude. Yeah. This is like life and death bucket list stuff. Yeah. I don't have that. You don't. Well, let's get on it. I don't know what I would want to do. I mean, part of the thrill of Everest is you could die. Right. And, and then you do it and you survive. You feel like you you've really overcome something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something out there that I want to tackle that's going to be that tough. <laughs> Well, I mean, maybe maybe it's just raising a healthy family without, you know, without police intervention. I don't know. 
Yeah, it it could be something that simple. Could be. I, yeah, I don't see that as being a the same equivalency. Yeah, raising kids without police intervention and climbing Everest. Well, but Everest was was his own thing. It was for him. Well, I mean, it's interesting yeah. when he got to the top. Mm-hmm. He could hardly wait to take a picture with his family. He has a, had a family picture he carried with him and to make a phone call yeah. back home. Mm-hmm. So it was all about everyone else anyway. It's a moment. Right. Yeah. And then he really wanted to hurry home. He just wanted to get back home. So he made the greatest accomplishment in his lifetime, but he wanted to share it so with everyone. Then it's the question cold. is, you make that achievement, is the rest of life just downhill? Well, or, or <laughs> then, what's, I mean, it's what's, all downhill. Well, it is. It's always I mean, downhill. Literally, yeah. but after. That, and then figuratively, is it downhill? Have you achieved your no. life goal and no, there's because, no more play? Well, because then he has the next goal. Which, which is would, what? Which would, we'll ask him because okay. it probably involves now let's spend the time that he spent and the resources he spent on his personal goal. Let's do that with family now. Let's go be with people. You know what, though? That's probably next. My goal is probably hmm. even bigger. I'm trying to get even higher than that. Really? Where? Space? Heaven. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, not, not every goal can be reached. Well, you know, there's, there's good thoughts. There's not good, every goal. good intentions. Yeah. And then there's reality, but yeah, whichever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was just funny. Um, so we will be speaking with Bart Williams who at age 60 climbed Mount Everest. And again, he could not give more credit to the to the Sherpas that that are there with him the entire way, cleaning the ice off his mask. They might do it two or three times right. a year. He got all excited. He's screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs when he was at the top. Then he thought, no, 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 no. you got to be careful because you don't want to— Trigger an avalanche And you don't want to run out of air. Well, that too. Oh, pretty neat. We'll talk to him about what it's like to be that inspired to do something. And then what do you do when you finally accomplished it? We'll get to to that incredible, I think, uh, wow, what a great example. Plus, visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. I'm going to ask him about Carmelo Anthony's robe. He was seen walking to the store. He shuffles. He's wearing sandals. He's wearing flip-flops, yeah. and um, Shuffles to the store. In, a, in his white robe that says Mellow on it. Probably looking for Cheetos. And by the way, pulls out a wad of money yeah, just, just has, from his front pocket of his cash. robe. I don't know. Apparently he does it often. Really? Yeah. He says it's across the street from his apartment. So he's like, I'll oh, just go across the street, put on a robe, go over there, get some food, come back. Who cares? Well, I mean, your mother teaches you you don't you don't want to wear what wear the clothes that you want to wear when you die. And then the story is his wife shaming him on social media, videoing the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, "What? This it's fine. Is, I'm dressed. This is mellow yellow." I think it's a different mellow we're talking about. It's a car mellow. I don't think so. More of the... But it is kind of... You can just almost see him just kind of lumbering across the street. The underperforming forward of the New York Knicks. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because he looks great in a robe. Apparently. We'll get to that fun with BYU Sports Nation. We'll also be talking about a couple of... uh, Apparently burning out in your car burnouts are... they're They're the... the rage. They're the new thing. Get to that headline news and headlines. Plus, of course, the hero of the day, which we always like to end with the hero story of the day. But first, 
Let's get to our own hero of the Matt Townsend Show, Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? A plane crash in East Connecticut is being investigated as an intentional act, reports the New York Times. The crash killed a passenger, but the pilot survived with severe burns. The small plane went down just before 4 p.m. on Main Street near the airport, killing a 28-year-old who lived near Chicago. The pilot reportedly told investigators that the crash wasn't an accident. He was not immediately identified. John Podesta, campaign chairman for Hillary Clinton, claimed late Tuesday that Donald Trump's campaign appeared to know details of the WikiLeaks hack on a Democratic Democratic nominee's team long before it was released. Podesta said the FBI is investigating a criminal hack of his email account and considers the WikiLeaks release part of a larger agency investigation into Russian cyber attacks on members of the U.S. government. Hurricane Matthew has now claimed at least 34 lives in the U.S., with 17 killed in North Carolina alone as the state faces more flooding. At a press conference Tuesday, North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory said three more people had drowned since 14 were announced dead Tuesday morning. One man had been driving home when a tree fell on him, McCrory said, and two more people were found drowned in their cars. Too many people have died and we don't want any more to die, McCrory said. I saw firsthand the suffering of citizens the suffering the citizens are going through that will stick with me for the rest of my life. Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia are are still dealing with the aftermath of the storm as 700,000 are left without power in those states. And finally, a romantically inclined fifth grader Mm -hmm. wrote an elaborate love note expressing his feelings for his school crush, Abby. I had to share this. Okay, cute. It's, It's cute. Your eyes remind me of the evening sky, the note read. My heart felt like broken glass until I saw you, and then I felt like I had every Pokemon ever. (laughs) The unidentified student went on to express how he appreciated Abby's shared love of video games. I love how you play Zelda, even when people think it's weird, he wrote. If you like me, it would be my first victory ever. Hmm. It was unclear whether Abby accepted the heartfelt proposal, but the youngster's words captured the hearts of many ready Did the school suspend him for harassment? Because that's what normally happens in this situation. So far, no. Nothing? Okay. It's interesting that um, he's very eloquent. He knows how to throw a metaphor together. Very eloquent for a fifth grader boy. Yeah. So you talked about this guy that climbed Mount Everest and this being a great achievement in his life. Mm -hmm. And this little boy just said it would be my greatest achievement if you would just like me. That's the sweetest thing. Isn't that it is. so cute? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, but every fifth grader had a crush, right? Oh, yeah. Do you remember yours? Sure. Mine was like a high school senior. Ooh, look at that. She was quite a lady. I remember mine. What's her name? Her name was Amanda, and she approached me when she found out that I liked her. She's like, I know that you like me. And I was like, uh, well, my brother doesn't like you. Great comeback. And, and your brother, you just threw that in there as a distraction. But he really didn't like her so as you, a person. So you're being honest. Yeah, but that's all I could think of. And so is that how the whole, is that how the whole interchange ended? Is that, is that, is that you, just, you just talked that through right there and it just ended? Yeah, she walked away and I was like, Whew, I think that went quite well. And how did how did it turn out with you guys? Well, we never, you know, were an item or anything. So nothing. Yeah. That one interaction. And then he ruined it. Yeah. It was plus, good, though. Plus you threw your brother under the... Yeah. Your poor brother. Oh, he deserved it. <laughs> he had it coming. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, Sadie, thanks. Hmm. Boy, I got our minds going. 
I used to play kissing tag. Really? Yeah. Would you kiss your hand and then tag no, somebody? No, I'd okay. pretend to outrun girls, but I darn it, I'd just like fall and twist my ankle and they'd catch up. We played slug tag. Oh, really? So you'd punch each other? Yeah. <laughs> that didn't last long. Yeah. We played various versions of that game. It's so violent. Yeah. It was fun, though. We're boys. <laughs> it's good. Boys will be boys. The That's girls, what we're learning about. Then the girls would want to play, and we're all like, can we hit a girl? Sure. You can play, but we get to hit you. Oh, I don't want to play. Okay. Yeah. See, we never played hit the girl. We just played try to pretend like you were. You want to look like you're out running them, mm. but then don't. We couldn't even hit girls in video games. I think I talked about this before, where if we were fighting Chun-Li mm. on Street Fighter mm-hmm. 2 and my mom would walk in, why are you hitting a girl? Well, she, mom, she's a ninja. Mom, this woman, this woman's schooling me. <laughs> so you, you, you had to throw the fight? Yeah. So your mom taught you to throw the fight. I'm going to hear about this, by the way, because my mom does listen to the show. Your mom's brilliant. Wow. Okay. See, so look at we've we've gone from climbing Everest mm. to just trying to get a girl to like you, to then not hitting girls, which is a great rule. We didn't have any success. It sounds like. Yeah, I think we with just, the whole girls liking you at an early age. Yeah, I think we found three girls that like us. Yeah. Well, eventually. I yeah, I used to have tons. And there's a lot of people on the planet. You think the odds? Well, but I probably would not have gotten my current wife if I did not have that experience with Amanda. Hmm. It's true. It's a really good point. Plus, your brother would not still be single. Is I hope he's not single. <laughs> he's not single. Okay. Wow. Just checking. Um, yeah. Wait till you're all older. Like when you're 47 years old, the girls all look at you like, oh, you cute old man. Do you need help to your car? That's what I get a lot. I don't know if I – do I look like – You shuffle. Do no. I shuffle now? There's some shuffling happening. But I usually so. shuffle after I've taken my walk. Yeah. So – Yeah. Maybe if I just picked up my legs more, my feet more, they may not always want to help me to my car. Shuffling makes you look older. So keep that in mind. <sighs> Good point. Hey, by the way, it's a bring your teddy bear to work day. This is the day you bring that cute little teddy bear of yours to work. Mm. You can bring your gummy bear to work to do today too. Right, Sadie, did you bring any gummy bears to work today? No. Nope, that's a negative. Apparently, no gummy bears. Did you bring any old farmers to work today? Today's old farmers' day. No. Okay. No farmers. Boy, today's the day that uh, society was built on the rugged shoulders of and stubborn personalities of farmers from around the world. We got to get the farmer out of the dell. Sadie, did you bring any farmers with you today? No. Uh, I'm fresh out of those. No farmers. Gummy farmers? Oh, I love gummy farmers. That just sounds gross. Um, old Farmers Day, we celebrate you. Way to hold up the food, just the entire food. And fight off big manufacturing. Corporate, corporate farms yeah. that are taking you over day by day. Exactly. Sorry. Bring it, bring an old farmer to work day. Today's the day. Hey, uh, did you hear this story about the teen that was hospitalized because of his air freshener exploding? It, it, what? 
We, we want to warn everybody. I mean, cell phones are exploding. Now listen to this. A German teenager has suffered serious injuries after accidentally creating an explosion in the family car hmm. with an air freshener. Police say the 17-year-old boy had been trying Wednesday to get rid of the smell of cigarette smoke. He probably mm. – so he sprayed all of this, you know, this uh, – Air freshener. Air freshener, but you're going to you, – you know, the ones that you always see in the bathroom probably. Right. And uh, he in his second-hand Volkswagen SUV, they say the teen then sprayed so much air freshener inside the vehicle that it turned into a combustible gas mixture. When he, when he opened the door mm. – it turned the light on, and the light then caused the explosion. So what they're saying is, open the windows. Oh, he's in trouble. <laughs> you know that feeling when you just, you realize, oh boy. So what would be more trouble, getting caught smoking or blowing up the garage? Oh, I would for sure blow up my garage before ever getting caught smoking. <laughs> Do you guys smell smoke? Yeah, the car blew up in the garage, Mom. <laughs> It makes you wonder how many kids had tried to. Get I'm not, the I'm not smell developing out. possibly a lifelong habit here. No, it's a great way to get rid of the evidence. It says the police say the force of the explosion blew out the vehicle's large glass sunroof. Wow! And the boy was hospitalized with burns on his arms. Did he have his eyebrows? Yeah. Okay. The good news did not get in trouble for smoking in the car. Apparently not. <laughs> Well, probably now because he had to explain what he was doing. Can you imagine? That's too bad. Well, it was spraying air freshener. Why? Well, mom, the car smells. It smelled like, musty. It's old. It's old car smell. Now you can go to the. Uh, anytime you go get your car washed, you can go get the new car explosion smell. Mm. I love that one. A little charred arm hair smell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How do you sell that car from now on? Like, I just smell flesh. That ain't flesh. <laughs> well, there's a story to that. Yeah. Let me tell you the story. Hey, a dad allows a five-year-old son to perform burnouts in his motor because the car addiction stops drug addiction, the dad thought. Really? Yeah. There's a t-shirt. So a London dad allows his five-year-old son to perform burnouts in his car because he says he'd rather have him addicted to cars than drugs. I think that's a good point. But then there's the point where you're, is it five? Yeah, he's, he's five. five trying to drive a car? No. Uh, Alex Dobson lets his boy Riley hop into the driver's seat, plant his foot on the accelerator as the footage uh, that we will post on social media for you to get a gander of this. You're going to want to see this. Five-year-old boy flooring it. And then if you keep the brake engaged, it just, you know, the tires heat up, start smoking, bada boom, bada bing, you got yourself a burnout. And the dad's convinced that this is going to keep him from becoming a drug addict. Drug-free. Okay, except we have we have a contrary opinion. Mm. We actually have a, a counteracting story. You ready? Another man was arrested for doing burnouts <laughs> in front of a news crew during a hurricane. A Florida man seeking an extra thrill during the hurricane, Matthew, was arrested after doing burnouts in his truck around reporters in Daytona Beach. 20-year-old Brandon Ware was arrested early Friday morning for reckless driving and booked into Volusia County Branch Jail. The T-shirt that Ware was wearing was explicit and ironic with a basically saying blank speeding tickets. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a clip of that, by the way. Do we? Uh, let's see. It's right here. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
There he goes. He's having fun. Uh, Ware said that his dad taught him to do burnouts as a little kid so he wouldn't do drugs. So now all he does is gets arrested for burning out. And the evidence, of course, is on TV. (laughs) We just saw you. Oh, right. So is the dad right? Does it stop burnout? Well, if you preoccupy your child with something positive, that'd be the idea. Yeah. I don't know if letting your kid do burnouts, maybe teach him about the engine. Teach him how to fix a car. Buy him maybe a toy where he gets to fix an engine and make those. Right. Yeah. Teach him some skills that way rather than have him do burnouts at five. That's a great idea for any kid to take this idea to their parent and just say, you know, I really want to go to that concert. Uh, It'll really help me stay away from drugs. Uh Uh-huh. Mom, I don't want to be a burnout, so I'm going to go do burnouts. Can I stay out past midnight because it'll help me avoid drugs? <laughs> that one might not be as convincing. Just, the rule is don't don't take it. Don't believe that. Your kids are just playing with you. They're just playing with you. Anyway, find a better hobby. Serve the poor. Go to a rest home. Read a book. Just some ideas. We will take a break. When we come back, uh, Bart Williams will be joining us. He just climbed Mount Everest about five months or so ago. And uh, we're here to learn about the power of setting a goal, sticking to it, and what happens when you actually accomplish these really hard-to-reach, far-reaching goals. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. still have dreams and goals from when you were a child that you haven't accomplished yet. As we get older, our families grow up. Sometimes it seems like our life goals are just dreams of the past, but it's never too late to do what you want with your life. Bart Williams is a great example of this and joins us today from Salt Lake City to tell us about uh, his experience achieving his dream of climbing Mount Everest at the age of 61. Bart Williams, thank you for being with us. You're welcome, Dr. Matt. And congratulations on accomplishing a lifelong goal. That's great. Thank you very much. It was indeed a lifelong goal and uh, something that came into my mind uh, in the last few years. You, you were 61. This was, You just did this this last May, was it April? Yes, uh, and, May 23rd of Sunday. Uh, I mean, and... Uh, what do you, what went through your mind? I mean, and what, and what do you think now as you as you look back and think I did it? I did my goal. Uh, it's exhilarating. Uh, it, it, it still gets me through every day to think that I stood at the the highest point on earth, which was what I wanted to do. It was uh, kind of the pinnacle of my hobby, ambition, desire, and I thought, uh, you know, if I don't do that, um, then well, maybe I haven't uh, reached the pinnacle of my hobby. And besides that, my, one of my grandson's middle name is Everest. And I thought, well, <laughs> for no other reason, I need to do it for him. <laughs> oh, how great is that? I mean, it, it seems like um, when you read the story and people can find out more about the story by going to your blog, BartWilliamsEverest.com. Um, but right when you got to the top, one of the first things you wanted was the picture. You wanted to have the picture, but you wanted to be holding your family flag up when you took the picture. Yes, I carried my family every step of the way from the beginning of the trek 
and all of the, um, the different training we did along the way to uh, get ourselves ready to, to get to those high altitudes. And uh, yes, I was, that was one of the most exciting things for me was to hold, hold them at the top. And then the satellite phone, you pull it out of your pocket, and once you got the picture, you wanted to get them on the phone. Yes, and uh, I got them on the phone, and I was so excited, and I had pulled my oxygen mask just two or three inches away from my face. And uh, in retrospect, I could have pulled it off for uh, a couple of minutes to talk to them, but I was so excited, uh, they didn't understand a word I said. In fact, they, they thought I might have even been in trouble. Yeah, you know? <laughs> we're losing Dad. <laughs> He's slurring his speech. Oh, that's great. It, was the family involved the entire time? I mean, I'm sure it took a lot of your own energy and resources, but and it probably took you away from them a lot of time. Well, interestingly, uh, they had advised me, you know, not to call home very often, um, because you get too homesick, yeah. and I actually did exactly the opposite, and that worked really well for me. I had both a cell phone that worked well over there and a satellite phone, and I called my wife in the morning and the evening and shared every moment of it with her. She had actually been to base camp with me twice before, once just on a trek, and once uh, in 2015, uh, which subsequently ended up in uh, with the earthquake. Mm. Um, and she had already returned home, but I called her also from Camp 1 at 20,000 feet right after the earthquake occurred to tell her I was okay at uh, you know her time at 1.30 a.m. in the morning. Um, so, uh, you know, I... I had them be a part of this adventure as much as I possibly could. We blogged every day. When I couldn't blog um, above base camp, uh, I would call her on the satellite phone and and have her blog for me. Hmm. So uh, I was able to keep in touch with not only my family, but friends and colleagues as well. How does does a Morgan Stanley financial advisor (laughs) then get to Everest and um, and accomplish – Everest. I mean, that's two different worlds. It really is. Uh, you know, this uh, affords me the opportunity to do that. Um, my my business does uh, allows me to be away at times for you know two and three uh, months, as I had to be for Everest. But I had uh, um, the manager of the office who was willing to. Uh, run my business for me while I was gone, hmm. and in fact, he he's an ex uh, BYU quarterback, um, and had uh, only request was that I carry a, a BYU shirt to the top of the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, Great! I'm a Ute, I'm a Ute fan. Yeah. How can I do that, but I said, no, done. You know, if that's all you're if that's all it takes. Do, I, I'm more than happy to do that. Oh, how great is that? I not only carried my picture, but I carried uh, the football jersey as well. Oh, that is wonderful. Okay, we'll have to tell the sports guys that in a few minutes. Um, When you you got there, I mean, this really was – you mentioned in your article this idea of constant forward motion – um, how, how you've been wanting to do this for a very, very, very long time. Have you just been constantly kind of moving toward it until all of a sudden you got there? Well, not really. I had um, early in my life, my my parents had taught me uh, the joy of reading, and I read a book called Banner in the Sky. It was later made into a movie called Third Man on the Mountain, a Disney movie. 
and it was about a Swiss man who conquers the mountain that killed his father, and and um, it just kind of stuck with me. And and then uh, when I was 21 years old, uh, we uh, some friends uh, and myself tried to climb the Grand Teton, and we were unsuccessful because um, of a storm that came in. But I started reading about all these interesting places uh, on the mountain, like the Eye of the Needle and Wall Street and the Friction Pitch. And so these places started calling to me, and uh, it it just it became a a desire of mine to see kind of almost historically where some of these places, uh, well, some things that had happened there, uh, like, uh, for instance, on the Eiger, you hear of the Death Biv- Bivouac and the Hinterstoyser Traverse and some of these things. And it, it had always intrigued me to try to uh, visit these places. And then, of course, Everest, um, you know, places like uh, the Balcony and mm-hmm. the Hillary Step and the Cornish Traverse are places that I wanted to visit. So you, and then all of a sudden you find yourself right there. <laughs> What, what's that yeah. like to be looking to be, you know, in one of these locations actually doing it? Well, it was it was tremendous. Um, I, you know, it was uh, probably the biggest thrill of my life um, when we finally got up to uh, the South Summit, and we were now you know less than two hours away from the summit. Um, the uh, sky started to lighten up, and uh. um, and this beautiful cornice traverse uh, that leads up to the Hillary Step and then to the summit. Um, you know, I cried the whole way up there, uh, realizing a dream. And in speaking with a lot of my teammates later on, they had all had the same experience. Oh. And it was it was just a beautiful thing. And to have the weather participate and be there for you. Um, yeah, what's that like when you're two you're two hours out, but you had good energy and you you thought you had good weather too. Well, at that point, you know, my energy had been gone for a long time, and it, again, back to the constant forward motion, just putting one foot in front of the other to try to make it happen. But then, uh, just the thrill of seeing the goal there in front of me, um, that carried me on. It was almost, you know, like a magnet pulling me to the top. Yeah. Holy cow! Meanwhile, you had a you had a, a a Sherpa with you, a native with you. I loved how much respect you showed them. I mean, these these people. You'd say, you know, we I accomplished it, but really, I couldn't have done it without my my guide, my guy. I think to a climber that ever climbs Everest, um, there's the greatest amount of respect that goes to the Sherpas, and and we all know. And every one of us states at the end that there's no way that we could have ever climbed Everest without our Sherpa. Aren't they amazing? They're just they truly are. They're not. They're, yeah. They're, there's one that lives in Draper. I don't know if you've met him. I haven't met him personally, but I certainly heard a lot about oh. him because I think he still might hold the record for yeah. the summits. And he's just he's a machine, but he's a tiny little machine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I love it. Let's take a break. I want to come back and have you teach us, Bart, uh, as, a, as a 60-year-old man, what, what we all need to know about our dreams and our goals and our ability to accomplish big things that we didn't think we could. We're more with Bart Williams. Uh, go check out his, his website, bartwilliamseverest.com. Just a financial advisor. Uh, he'd probably even say an average guy that just loves to mountain climb. 
and loves his family and uh, made a, a big dream come true. Stick with us. We'll keep learning. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, when it comes to a dream, do you have one? Do you have one that you think, okay, by the age of 50, I want this. By the age of 60, I want to be here. Well, Bart Williams um, had a lifelong dream of climbing Mount Everest. And, you know, there were times where the dream was was destroyed the during the earthquake. Um, for example, uh, in 2015, that literally shook Nepal at 7.8 earthquake. Um, but then he, he went back the next year and, and made it happen. Bart Williams joins us today. He has a great website to, to talk about his, uh, his accomplishment, bartwilliamseverest.com. But, uh, you know, in his regular life, he's just a Morgan Stanley financial advisor <laughs> and yet an avid mountain climber, father, husband. Bart, thank you again for being with us and sharing the story. I think it's, uh, I think it's super motivating. Oh, you're welcome. What what did you learn about goals um, that the rest of us probably need to hear? Well, I have to admit that um, I may not be uh, the best at it. <laughs> I, I think what drove me was my age. And I started thinking when I was about 57, once I'd been told that I, I was still probably capable of doing Everest, I started thinking uh, back to my 50th birthday and just this wonderful birthday that my family threw for me, actually like a funeral. And they reached, uh, you know, giving a eulogy for yeah. me, you know, and they, they didn't, they wouldn't let me talk. I had to sit in the back of the room, you know, it brought me to tears, of course, all this. And, but I, at 57, I started thinking, you know, uh, the last 10 years has gone by so quickly and another 10 years is going to go by before I can blink my eyes, and, and, I'll, and I'll be 70. And I thought, at 70, I think the dream is definitely gone. I, I thought it was gone at 50, hmm. uh, but then I was convinced that maybe it wasn't. But I think it was age and thinking that if I ever want to achieve my dream, I've got to do it while I'm still capable physically uh, and mentally. And of course, the mental part of this is uh, uh, the, the toughest part. Yeah. I mean, it really, that's actually, you know, that's pretty telling because, again, 10 years goes fast and you did it at 60. Um, do you sense do you, what's your next goal and is, is your next goal anywhere near that um, or, or what do you do after you've done the biggest thing? Well, my, my goal now is to spend lots of time with my children and grandchildren. I've got eight grandchildren, and they're ages from one to ten. And uh, as anybody who has grandchildren knows, they're, they're so fun to be with. Mm. And, and I'm fortunate that they're all uh, very close uh, to where I live, and we get to see them often. And it's just so fun to watch them grow and develop. And, and that's my goal, is to spend lots of time with them and to be close it's um, our 40th anniversary next year, and, oh, wow. and something that Judy and I have always wanted to do is is uh, the the out route from um, 
Mont Blanc to Zermatt, where you go oh, over neat. eight or ten passes um, and hiking uh, over about a two-week period. Yeah. And, and that's kind of our next little goal, but that's something, uh, although Judy's uh, very, very capable of doing Mount Everest, uh, she chose wisely not to, um, but this is something that fits well within what she'd love to do as well. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all about them, and it's been so selfish all about me for many years. What, what, uh, what role did Judy play in you getting it done? A very important role. Um, we had uh, we had arrived to Camp Three uh, at twenty four thousand feet, and uh, some very strong winds came up, and we were forced to uh, retrace our steps back down the Lotsi, the steep Lotsi face, and back to Camp Two. And getting up to Camp Three at the Lotsi face is extremely difficult, and we were all just so downtrodden, depressed when we got back, thinking that we would have to do that again. Uh, mm. We thought that was going to be our summit attempt. And I called Judy uh, from Camp 2, and I said, you know what, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I have it left in me to do this. And she assured me that I did. Mm. And she gave me the confidence to get it done, and I think that was a critical moment in the climb when I, I needed uh, my best friend to help me to the next step. That's amazing. You know, and she's just back at home sitting in her living room. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And yet she's, she's, she's providing the belief that you needed at the time. That's pretty powerful, exactly. which is probably why you were in such a hurry to call her. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, because this really yeah. became your family's trek. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be because, again, I fought it my whole life thinking this is such a selfish thing. It's expensive. I'll be gone for a long time. I risk my life. And um, I, 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 I felt very guilty about mm. it. And to have them along with me and to keep them part of it as much as I could was the next best thing. I love it. I think that's such an important lesson that no matter what the task, it's still going to come back to people and our family and our grandkids and our kids. I mean, it it's always comes back to those we love. What advice would you give on the way out for the rest of us about making our own dreams become a reality? Well, do it while you can. Uh, don't put it off. Um, you know, while you're healthy and strong and um, you know, uh, even my advice in the financial world is, uh, you know, take advantage uh, and, and do what you can do while you still can do it. Um, you know, don't don't save all your money till you can't you can't do it anymore. Right. You know? Right. No, you know, that's uh, that's so good, Bart. And you're the kind of guy that I think everybody would want to be their financial advisor because you, you your priorities are obviously straight and you you're you know you're willing to risk but not i mean you did it the healthiest best way you could do it as well so bart we appreciate you it sounds like you're going to have to write a book about this well uh thank you i i i think you know what i've experienced would make maybe one good chapter but <laughs> <laughs> no. i don't think i could do a whole book <laughs> well the family side is super good uh bart williams we appreciate you and keep up the great work good luck on your uh, future hikes with judy Interesting stuff. Isn't that cool? The power of a partner calling you uh, 
to get back up the mountain. That's pretty awesome. Really perfect symbol, right, of marriage. Bart Williams, uh, again, Morgan Stanley Financial Advisor. Go check out his website, bartwilliamseverest.com. And uh, great insight. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. We're helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let's uh, shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Holler. Matthew, it's wonderful to be with you on this glorious Wednesday. This glorious Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay, uh, we're playing uh, Caramello is the name of the commercial. I believe it's Caramello. Caramello. <laughs> and we're talking about Carmelo. Anthony. Anthony. Do you know why? No, what did he do? He has a famous. He's had a famous moment recently. He walks to the store in his bathrobe, like in real life or in a commercial. No, in real life. He at night he gets a little, you know, gets the munchies. So he walks from his apartment across the street, wearing his white bathrobe. He and his wife goes with him. His his bathrobe, by the way, has a monogrammed mellow on it. And um, his Olympic hat, and then he pulls out a wad of cash, and then he buys treats for his family. Do the sweats that he's wearing have juicy imprinted on the bottom? Interesting. He's not wearing sweats. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He's sweatless. He's just wearing a robe. Who knows what's on underneath? But his his wife decided to embarrass him because it's, you know, you shouldn't wear your robe to the store. So Superstars the, are more and more like us, I am finding out. Yeah. They're just regular people in super high-profile public positions right. that excel at a certain thing. But, I mean, I heard about LeBron James getting mad that they didn't that the laundry people didn't clean up the locker room the other night after a preseason game for the Cavaliers, so he picked up all of the laundry bags. Did he really? Yes. I wouldn't want to do that now, let alone if I was a millionaire. Yeah, let alone if you're LeBron. LeBron yeah, the James. King, the king cleaning up the laundry after a preseason NBA game. What a guy. There you go. And then you got Carmelo in his bathrobe going to get some munchies late at night. I mean, so you guys, I saw you the other day walking around in your robe. Here you at, did? Yeah, here at BYU Broadcasting. Wait. What was that about? How come I didn't get the memo that I could wear my robe to BYU? When it was Jerem doing it, I think he had just gone to, it was taco day, and he had just picked up some tacos for the team. And was, a robe? That's a bad company. And you, but you were wearing that Power Ranger robe that you have. I, we were discussing Power Rangers because the trailer came out the other day. Mm-hmm. That Spencer and I did not get into Power Rangers. No, weren't yet. We were at either. the point yeah. in elementary school where it was not cool. Yeah. to like the Power Rangers. You were too old for point. Power Rangers. Although I was like, I really want to watch, but I'm not going to be cool at school, <laughs> so I can't. You don't want to look that like was the an battle idiot. I really had right. They're wow. streaming on Netflix that was yesterday, now. The I think all, that I all of the episodes are streaming on Netflix, and I purposely went back and watched the first ever episode it is so bad it's so bad <laughs> yeah i can't believe that it was ever popular i'm like how did the, how did the pilot ever make anybody want to watch well i think i think once you're wearing masks it's not about the acting anymore mm, i'm gonna disagree with you on that are you yeah that man yeah the mask doesn't matter but is it? Do people watch Batman because the acting? I'm not wearing hockey pants. <laughs> <laughs> that show, 
That show is so bad. That's really good, though. What What is the name of the when they combine five powers? Like they form like this Megatron. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying. Is like the the I, Mighty Zord or something? I'm trying to remember what no, it was. I have no idea. Ask Mighty Jaren. Zord, formulate, go. <laughs> formulate. I don't know. Formulate. They, I don't know what they say. I, I literally have no idea. Hey, here, here's one for you too. Um, do you guys Sounds know cool. what coolrophobia is? No. Fear of clowns and jesters. Say it again. Coolrophobia is the fear of clowns and jesters. A lot of people deal with that, I'm guessing. Totally. A little more now. Yeah. Geek! Did you you guys hear about the new show that BYU Broadcasting is doing? Trick! It's it's called Bob... Clowned. No. It's called Bob the the Clownty Hunter. Hosted by Bryce Harper. It's like... like, Exactly. It's like it's like it's like uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter, but it's Bob the Clowny Hunter, and he hunts clowns down. In fact, last week he got a Volkswagen full of clowns. He he netted thirty in one get. <laughs> this is going to be a viral show, man. People yeah. are going to get super on board with this. It is, it Coming is, in twenty twenty three on it's BYU TV. Huge. So, um, you guys, you're still doing your show, right? <sighs> yeah. I'm yes, you're still doing. Okay. Yep. So, so what? Um, What's coming up on your show today? A clown question for starters. What? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I love a good clown question. Clown question, bro. But it is a good question, and that is how have your total win expectations for BYU changed six games into the season? Mm. Now, there's more that plays into the six games because of what BYU has done, specifically the last two. Yeah. So we're going to ask fans and all of you, including Matt Townsend, mm-hmm. how your expectations have changed Excellent. at the midway point. That, that'll be a good That'll be a good topic. Not to mention we're two-on-one with one of the elite running backs in all of college football, Jamal Williams. What does the career rushing record mean to him? He's only 64 yards away from clinching that. And a former BYU foe, Utah quarterback Brian Johnson, now is the quarterback's coach for Mississippi State. Mississippi. (laughs) What's it going to be like for him to return to Lavelle Edwards Stadium? He's going to join us live. Oh, how cool. That is a great interview. See? You guys... Every day. Every stinking day. Hey, Good song uh, by Dave Matthews, man. By the way, I do have a headline for you. Um, we just interviewed a guy named Bart Williams, a 60-year-old University of Utah fan that climbed Everest. Mm-hmm. Nice. But he carried to the top of Everest a BYU T-shirt. I've seen the picture. That's the guy. We just had him on the show. Very cool. So, uh, didn't he do it for a friend or yeah, something? Yeah, because his friend that was watching his business said, all I want is that you carry one of our a, a, a shirt up the mountain. And he did it. Major props to both of those guys, forward-thinking and for one actually climbing the mountain and risking his life. Isn't that crazy? Who does that? But I did climb the stairs this morning, if you're keeping score. Congratulations. Air air day. Air day on climbing them stairs. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. Thanks, Matt. Remember who you are. Sports out. BYU Sports Nation. You're going to want to listen to those guys. It's only about five minutes away. And then they will change your life. How cool is that? Can we have Sadie bring in some caramellos tomorrow? No. No. Sadie Sadie's got too much to do. She's she's like she's busy. She's busy. You know what we can do? We could listen to Pope Francis. He tells American Catholics to vote your conscience. Pope Francis weighed in on the US elections last Sunday, urging American Catholics struggling to choose a president to study the issues, pray, and then vote your conscience. And 
then we hope that there's some divine intervention. (laughs) The people are a sovereign people, he added, and uh, just study it out, pray, and choose by your conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. Didn't Jiminy Cricket say that? Did he? And always let your conscience be your guide. Yeah. Is that why you have piano music on? Yeah. (laughs) Normally when I talk about the Pope, I don't expect to go to a piano bar. Just pointing that out. I'm sure he's been to one. No. He's from Argentina. He's one of my favorite leaders. In fact, uh, the Pope, apparently Pope Francis, has helped Maradona, the great the great soccer player, believe again. That's and fantastic. Remember, Maradona was the guy that had the hand of God where he punched in a goal and he said it was the hand of God, but it was really he punched it in with his hand, which is illegal. But um, apparently Maradona is coming back to the fold, ah, which is super cool. Um, we, we've had a great show. We've talked from we've talked about pretty much everything you can imagine over the last three hours, and from why academics are losing their relevance to what's going to be happening if all within ten years uh, with these self driving cars. Apparently, folks, the self driving car it's on it's on the road. No pun intended, but it's coming. It's that idea is just the worst. It's fantastic. It's I'm so excited, but uh, don't be afraid. Some people are afraid of a, of a self-driving car. No need to be afraid. No need. Here's a little uh, 10 quick uh, scary points. We won't get to all of them, but it's going to drop the cost of a car. Right now, a self-driving car is like $100,000, but those costs are going to be coming down. Eventually, it's just going to be about 20000 bucks maybe for a, you know, a Honda Civic. The, the the tech is only going to add a few more thousand dollars to the oh, car. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, driverless cars are going to save a lot of lives, 90% reduction in traffic fatalities, they believe. The semi-autonomous and auto- autonomous vehicles are also going to uh, – it's going to take off like crazy. They believe by 2035, there will be 76 million vehicles on the road. It's here to stay. Self-driving cars will open up new markets as well. So, I mean, now all of a sudden you'll have Google in the car market. You'll have Apple in the car market. (laughs) Who'd have thunk it? Anyway, as you know, we like to end with a hero story. Today's hero is a nurse who is being hailed as a hero after a disaster rescue. They saw our universal sign, which is the Red Cross. In Mexico, they knew the universal sign means that they can get help. Listen to this. The man who didn't speak English was suffering from a heat stroke. He was potassium depleted. He was cramping all over. We couldn't get him out of the truck because we didn't know, we didn't think that that would be safe, said Peters. And then guess what happened? This is all following the recent, a recent flood in Louisiana. Um, and guess what happened? With the help of two other nurses and a translator, Peters was able to get that man seen at a local hospital, saved his life. Nurse Gladys Peters, Peters is her name, and she is the one who just in a simple, simple flood ended up saving a man's life. Pretty basic stuff, folks. You're all heroes to us. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live longer, healthier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one and take care of each other. We'll talk tomorrow. 